0: The following is a presentation from the MJ cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I wanna see you! (laughs) I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass you become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode 147 of the MJ Cast. My name is Charlie Carter. You may have heard me on previous episodes. I'm usually the show audio producer, but today Elise and Jamin have asked me to present this episode, which has been billed as a limey lock in, a pommy party, or as we prefer to call it, the Big British q and I'm hosting today from Sydney, Australia, and we felt it was important that on the Great British Q&A, we should have at least two British guests who are actually in Great Britain. So joining me today are two familiar British voices. Firstly, award-winning journalist, recently voted 2022 local hero by the Association of Online Publishers, Charles Thompson. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. You
1: okay? Oh yeah, I'm not too bad. Thank you. Yep. Also joining this pair of Charlies is Summer Habib, creator of the Michael Jackson Academy Project and friend of the show. How are you, Summer? I'm really good, Charlie. How are you? You're right. Yeah, very good, thank you. Right before we hook into the questions, I'll just address the fact that there are two Charlies. Where possible, we will refer to Charlie Thompson either as Charles or Charlie, and myself as Carter, or we will use our full names respectively. We would like to thank all of our listeners, fans, and followers for all of the questions that you've sent in. We had 90 questions sent across the various platforms, and we'll try to get through as many as possible. I think 20 is a good number, but we'll try and get through more. And if we don't get to your question, we do apologize, and we will try to address all the points that were raised. All righty, let's get going. And in no particular order, let's start with at Emma Lee 909 from South Wales in the UK, who asks, aside from the Brett Barnes episode, which I think everyone needs to listen to at least once, what would be your top three episodes that a new listener but lifelong MJ supporter should listen to when delving into previous MJ cast podcasts? Charlie, let's start with you.
0: Well, that's a big ask. I think that the, um, the John Barnes episode would definitely be on that list. Oh boy. Michael Prince. We can only have three. Well, John Barnes, one, Michael it? Prince. It is. It's a really difficult one. The MJ Cars has produced so many great interviews. And also, you know, I just can't remember half of them because there's been so many. <laughs> John Barnes <laughs> John Barnes, Michael Prince, and the vocal director from Michael's Tours, Kevin Dorsey. His interview was also brilliant.
1: Excellent. Summer, how about you as a a long-time listener and friend of the show? What have been your three favourites?
2: Three is quite tough to narrow down. There's been some really good ones. Um, (laughs) I would say the Terrell Jackson episode was fantastic. The reason i select that one is because unlike a lot of guests on here who always overthink themselves, I do a lot as well when we're talking, we're overthinking ourselves, trying to self-censor ourselves. When he was speaking... He spoke really fluidly. He just—it was just a stream of consciousness, and there wasn't much. Po- you'll listen to it as if you listen to the episode, you'll you'll notice he just doesn't censor himself and doesn't filter himself. And there's lots of things that he says which a lot of people probably wouldn't have wanted to touch upon. I'm talking specifically about the Cassio tracks, and he speaks about the whole situation so kind of candidly. So that's definitely one I think everyone should check out. There's another one which. Massively coincidentally, I happen to be on, but it's a the reason I'm selecting it is because the content of the show and the subject of the mat- of the matter was is really important to understand Michael Jackson, I think, and it was the roundtable on the history album that a few of us participated in, and you learn a lot about Michael Jackson's craft and also about his cultural influence and input. There's always been this kind of infantilizing narrative surrounding Michael. I think the state and I think Sony kind of piggyback on that, you know, he's always sold to the lowest common denominator. But, you know, if you really kind of analyze his work, it's very adult. It's very mature. And there's lots of really deep political, social content in there. And so for a new listener and someone who's really interested in, you know, why these people are so crazy about Michael Jackson, a lot of that is in there. There's a couple that I would suggest for the third episode. There was an episode, I think, with Brad Buxer, which was fantastic because he really talked about how the songs were constructed and Michael's process when Michael was in his creative pomp, as well as, you know, Michael's process as he was going through, you know, trials and tribulations. And it was just a fascinating interview and someone who really loved and cared about Michael. And there was also another episode which I would tie for the third place, and it was the... uh, private detective that Tom Tom Mesro hired, Scott Ross. The episode with Scott Ross was absolutely fascinating. I mean, again, you learn so much about what went down in 2005, but also you learn a lot about the characters around the trial um, that you, you know, which has never really been documented. Um, and it's actually those kind of moments and those kind of interviews that make the MJ cast invaluable. It's an invaluable resource because you just won't get this content anywhere else so again that's an episode i would highly recommend
1: i'm glad you said the scott ross episode because that's one of the one of the first episodes that i heard i think and the information that i i got from that was just brilliant so i'm glad that you brought that one up for me it's difficult to narrow down a top three from just the year or so that i've been involved in the mj cast let alone the whole catalog a definite highlight was brett barnes to be able to secure that interview and that story from someone who has gone out of his way to avoid media conversations since 1993 because of his distrust for the media, for him to put that trust in the MJ cast and have us as his platform and in particular Charlie Thompson to ask the questions and to make nothing off limits was just incredible. And the story itself is a hell of a – listen, it's a hell of a story to hear – and to be on the other end of that call obviously as a silent part of that episode in real time hearing that story was just incredible thinking to myself I cannot wait for people to hear this and I didn't cut very much out of that episode at all it was just a great story and Brett seems like the kind of guy that you could just randomly come across in a pub somewhere in Australia have a few beers with and just have a laugh and just such a down-to-earth bloke Uh, so yeah Brett Barnes episode would be one. I did enjoy the episode with Matt Forger, Brad Sandberg, and Brad Buxer, the reflections on John Barnes. That was another good one. How to pick another one. It's so difficult, isn't it? From what, 146 other episodes before today. Bill Whitfield was good. Tarrell Jackson was good. TJ, Taj, all of them. I think the Leaving Neverland's Q&A is an important one, though. The question is, what would be your top three episodes that a new listener should listen to when delving into previous MJ Cast podcasts. I think the Leaving Neverland Q&A answers so many questions that people might have about Michael and his innocence uh, that it's a very important episode for people to listen to. So thank you very much, Emma, for that question. Very good one to start. Next up, at GN Word 3, doesn't give a location, but they ask, sorry, allegation question. Do the guys think there will ever be a day when one of the accusers, Jordan Chandler in particular, may come public and give their true accounts? Summer.
2: Uh, that's a really good question, and I'm sure it's something that a lot of MJ fans would hope for. Unfortunately, I just don't think it's. I don't think it's possible because I think there's so many kind of legal implications for anyone who has made the accusation gone through any sort of legal system implicated other people along with it and in jordan's case you know you've got his mother who testified under oath in 2005 she's also kind of you know given de- depositions prior to that and it would implicate his his legal team it would implicate you know there's some it would it would cr- create such a kind of wave of chaos for him as an individual that I'm just not sure it's possible. It's not, maybe he might want to. I know there were students who who went who studied with him who were uh, interviewed on, or one in particular was interviewed on the Michael Jackson documentary, Square One, who spent time with him and testified that, he, you know, he claimed that Michael Jackson never, never did anything to him and never abused him. And like, you know, the a- allegations were all fabricated, but I don't think it's possible for him to go public And rescind whatever allegations were kind of made public back then, as much as we would all hope they would. Again, the same with Wade and uh, James Safechuck. I'm just not sure there'll be so so many legal implications and so many ramifications for them as people that they've got themselves into situations now that there's no way of publicly turning back. So, unfortunately, I just don't think that's possible. Uh, It might be, you know, on someone's deathbed, they might write a letter and might leave a notebook. I just don't think it's possible while they're still, you know, young 30, 40 year olds that because, you know, in the in the situation with Wade and James, again, they'll have to implicate their whole families in the in the allegation in rescinding those allegations. And there's so, so much that swirls around them that they just can't pull themselves out of it. I don't think. What do you think, Charlie? Well, I think that, yes,
0: that's that that makes sense. And also the question is what's in it for them? You know, so if you believe that Jordan Chandler was, you know, was not abused, for example, and uh, for whatever reason, maybe was pressured into saying that he was, or underwent some kind of brainwashing, or whatever, but today he realizes that nothing happened to him. Certainly, we know, as you say, that when the Michael Jackson defense team was preparing for trial in two thousand and four, and they followed the trail of breadcrumbs to New York, where they discovered that Jordan had been to university. Because Jordan never, after after the allegations, he refused to live with either his mother or his father, refused to have anything to do with either of them. And he instead went to live with Evan's second ex-wife and his half-siblings that Evan had had with his, his new wife, and refused to have anything to do with either of his parents and gained legal emancipation until at some point he did agree to to a meeting with Evan and then just disappeared. He went exactly the same as it happened in 93. He went to meet Evan and then Evan just took him somewhere, just disappeared. And nobody really knows what happened in those intervening years until Jordan popped up at university in New York. And we know that at that point, He was telling anyone that had listened that he thought Michael Jackson was innocent, that he didn't think Michael Jackson would ever abuse a child, that he hated his parents, that he felt used by his parents, etc. So we know that that was his position the last time anybody went looking. The defense decided not to contact him in the end, because the other thing that they found out about Jordan was that he reacts extremely badly to people approaching him about Michael Jackson, extremely badly. So when the prosecution kept harassing him to testify for them in the 2005 trial, he became extremely angry with them, actually left the country so they couldn't subpoena him so that he couldn't testify. The defense was concerned that he reacted so badly to people invading his privacy and approaching him that if they did the same thing, if they approached him, then he might veer in the other direction. He might get so angry at them that he'd go, do you know what? I am going to come and testify to teach you a lesson. So I always get a bit, uh, I'm I'm always very, I take a dim view of the fans. There are fans who are absolutely obsessed with trying to find Jordan And I've had messages in the past from fans saying, I've got Jordan Chandler's social security number, things like that. I was I don't want it. I don't want it. Don't send it to me. And I would advise you not to go looking for him either because you don't know what chain of events you're going to set in motion by doing that. You also don't know what damage you're going to do to him because if you believe that as a kid he was forced or brainwashed into making allegations, then he's a victim also. And you don't know what that's going to do to him, you know. So anyway, the question I always come back to on this is what's in it for Jordan? So Jordan is currently living a life of relative anonymity with quite a lot of money. What would be the consequence of him coming forward? It would be media intrusion for the rest of his life. People would know what he looked like. They'd know where he is. He would never be left alone again. Why would he invite that into his life? What would be the benefit for Jordan? He would just be swarmed by press and by fans and by, you know, sort of deranged sort of anti fans, if you will, sort of the John Lennon, Mark Chapman brigade, who are completely obsessed with Michael Jackson, but in a very corrosive and damaged way. He would just put himself on the radar of all these undesirable people. And for what personal benefit? I mean, the only personal benefit to him would be potentially to clear his conscience. But if he was, if he did what he did under duress or under some kind of pressure anyway, then I mean, it's a very difficult question. It is. Only time will tell.
1: I'm going to be a little bit more committed to the answer of no. I don't think he will. And my reason for that is reading the wording of the settlement agreement between Michael Jackson and the Chandlers, which was leaked. And I've got it here in front of me, and I read out – I won't read the whole thing because that will just take forever. But there are a couple of points here which make me come to that belief. Uh, And part of it says, The miner, by and through his guardian – agree that they will not at any time in the future make any engagement with any media, television or other public or private appearance, interview or broadcast related to Jackson in any capacity. And later in the document, it says the parties acknowledge that Jackson or his heirs, administrators, executors... Successes, etc., etc., shall be entitled to recoup as recovery any sums as may be received by the breaching party as compensation for such commercial exploitation. Which basically means if he speaks to any media whatsoever about Michael Jackson in any way, shape, or form, his estate, his family could legally sue to recoup the sums that were paid to him. Now, the only way that I could see that he could talk to the media if he wanted to would it be to come to a new agreement with the estate or the family? But like Charlie says, why would he? What's in it for him other than to clear his conscience? Now, I've heard people say it before on the show as well, and I might get panned for having this point of view, but I also have quite a bit of sympathy for Jordan Chandler for the position that his family put him in. And as Charlie mentioned a second ago, he took legal emancipation from his parents at the earliest available opportunity after the settlement was reached in 1994. As June Chandler testified in 2005, she hadn't seen him for 11 years. You know, do the maths, 2005 back to 1994, that's 11 years. So I don't think that Jordan will ever talk to the media. I mean, it would be great if he could do what Brett Barnes did and come and tell the MJ cast his story. But if there are any fans out there that are holding out for that, you could be holding your breath for a long, long time. If that situation ever does occur, and he is legally able to talk to the media about his story, I'm sure that many Michael Jackson fans would love to hear it. But again, what's in it for him? He makes himself a target. He makes his family a target. Or his, I assume that he's gone and got himself a family. He might have kids by now. He might have, well, he's definitely got his own life. Why would he open that to the world so long after the fact? Uh, And that's my take
2: on that matter. Yeah. One of the things we didn't talk about was that in those intervening years that Charlie had mentioned, when Jordan then suddenly started living with Evan Chandler again, Jordan filed legal documents, legal papers against his father again uh, for allegedly, I believe, threatening to kill him and uh, attacking him with some dumbbells and weight dumbbells. I think that those allegations came out in the week or fortnight after Michael Jackson was vindicated or cleared in 2005, which gives you a real insight into the kind of relationship and the kind of problems that this family was dealing with and the kind of issues that Jordan had to deal with with his own family. So it's really complex and really dark. Yeah, as both of you have mentioned, there's no benefit really for him other than a clear conscience which actually for a lot of people is is enough sometimes you know to come forward and the legal settlement document from 93 or not whenever the, those are signed might say one thing but you know 25 years 30 years later and with the accused now deceased situations can change you know if you if he wanted to talk to michael jackson's family the heirs or the people who are embedded as the estate, I'm sure. I'm sure those things can be ironed out, and he, it might also give him some sense of protection as well. I just think we're just way too far down the line now. That's a problem.
0: And also, just to add, uh, we've we've spoken almost exclusively about Jordan, but I think that that's because Jordan is the only one that matters. Because if any other subsequent accuser were to retract their allegation it wouldn't undo the original case. You know, so the the original case is the one that set it all off. If I was accused tomorrow of, you know, attacking a woman with a banana and pushing her down a flight of stairs and then six other people came forward and said, yeah, he did that to me as well, and then the original one turned out to have made it up, then what are the chances that the subsequent six that I just coincidentally did have a habit of attacking people with bananas. But the first one made it up. I mean, that would be outlandish and ridiculous. Clearly, if the first one was fake, then all the copycats would be fake. So if any of the copycats, if any of the subsequent allegations which were modeled on the Chandler allegations were to be retracted, Chandler would still be there. So Chandler is ground zero. So I think that he's, if if he were to recant, that's the only retraction which would really completely remediate the situation.
1: Yeah. And, and as I mentioned, I don't blame him for, for not coming forward at all. But, hey, and it's like they said in square one, once the first allegation is disproven, all the rest crumble.
2: Yeah. What you find is when people in the media talk about the Michael Jackson allegations, they're so uneducated on the claims and the allegations against him, and they're so kind of ignorant of past history. And you know, one thing they always try to uh, make a deal of is, oh, there's a pattern. The pattern of behavior is identical. Jordan Chandler with Gavin Arvisa, with Wade and James. The point about that is the Jordan Chandler allegations were public. Like they, you know, they were leaked to the press. They got into the news. And it's very easy if you, if I, you know, if I wanted to accuse Michael Jackson of anything it's very easy just to copy the formula of what was written out and kind of plotted out in those leaks to the press. So like Charlie said, if Jordan is ever able or ever willing to kind of rescind his previous allegations, it it just makes a mockery of everything else that came afterwards, because everything else, it, it was so easy just to kind of make the same allegation with the same kind of, you know, motivations and the same kind of behavior, because everything was public.
0: Yeah, that is the difference. That's why it always drives me crackers when the press compare the Michael Jackson case to Jimmy Savile or Harvey Weinstein, for example, because with Weinstein and Savile and even with Cosby, What emerged was that there had been a number of allegations made over a number of years by people that did not know each other and did not know about each other's allegations, which had been recorded by police or other parties and had remained completely secret. So when another allegation came along years later, it turned out there was evidence there of a pattern in the past, which nobody else could have known about. Whereas with Michael Jackson, as Sam says, the initial, the very first allegation is leaked to the press. I and a a guy called Rashid Musbah, who um, is an associate of Taj's, we now know who leaked it and why. And that's a story that will come out later. But um, the Michael Jackson allegations were leaked, the very first allegations, which, as Sam says, created basically a roadmap. So in Michael Jackson's case, unlike Savile or unlike Weinstein or Cosby, for example, the volume of accusers is absolutely not of any evidential value whatsoever. It means nothing because The roadmap has been in the public domain since the very first allegation. So anyone can just read about the allegations in myriad books, which are available from any bookstore, or just look them up online, as we know Wade Robson was doing from the emails that he lied to the court about and tried to cover up and pretend it didn't exist when they were eventually disclosed. They showed that he had been researching other people's allegations about Michael and had been emailing the links to himself. So the volume of allegations in Michael's case is of no relevance whatsoever. And that just sort of reiterates really why Jordan is the only one that matters. Jordan is ground zero. His is the only retraction which would matter in the in the grand scheme of things.
1: Just to add on to that as well, with with Jimmy Savile, that comparison it irks me as well. Any any comparison to Other famous cases, even when they say things like, okay, Michael Jackson was found not guilty at trial, but so was OJ Simpson. Chalk and cheese, an absolute drivel and, and no basis for comparison. Now, with Jimmy Savile, before there were any criminal proceedings or anything like that, there was prior knowledge of his bad behavior. Now, I don't know that there was any prior suspicion of Michael Jackson before the Chandlers came up with their story. With Jimmy Savile, my own mother has told me the story of when she was pregnant with my sister, she was at Stoke Mandeville Hospital. And at one stage, one of the nurses came in and said, Jimmy Savile's in the next room, would you like to meet him? And bearing in mind, this is the early 80s, early 1980s. And my mum flat out said, "Uh, no, no, I wouldn't. Because she knew the rumours, the things that Jimmy Savile was up to and there were pretty common knowledge long before he died in 2011, or what we know now came out in the press. I don't believe there was that level of prior knowledge when it comes to Michael Jackson. Anyway, we'll move on to the next question, because I think it's appropriate given the, the topic that we've just spoken about. This comes in from Dane Thompson in Brisbane, Australia. Thank you, Dane. Username at Danish4840. Are British tabloids worse than American tabloids? If so, why do you think this is? Uh, We'll go with the journalist
0: first for this one, Charlie. Well, in theory, they shouldn't be because British libel laws are far, far stricter than they are in America. So in America, libel or defamation laws are practically non-existent because the Constitution enshrines the right to free speech and the Constitution trumps everything. So uh, defamation has to be really, really egregious to succeed, uh, which is why there is a problem of libel tourism in the UK. So our libel laws in the UK are so strict that celebrities basically, if a story is published all over the world, they will choose the UK to sue in because it's so easy to win. Our defamation laws are so rigid. That said... I mean, I think the British tabloids are more institutionally racist than the American tabloids. And the American tabloids, where Michael Jackson is concerned, tended to publish more sort of ridiculous and outlandish stories. So, for example, there was one, I, I forget which tabloid it was, but one of them published a story in the 80s saying that Michael Jackson's llama had been shot by a mafia hitman. There was the, obviously the hyperbaric chamber story. There was the prince is um, telepathically communicating with bubbles to turn him against Michael. I think that was the National Enquirer. So the American tabloid stories tended to be more sort of ridiculous and jocular, whereas the British tabloids where Michael was concerned were always far more venal. They were far more abusive. They were very... Snide, they ridiculed his appearance, they called him a freak. I mean, there was a British tabloid, I have the paper somewhere, which called Michael the plastic faced freak. They called him wacko, of course, which is a, and they still do that today. They still call him wacko jacko, even though if they did that to any other celebrity, if they used mental health slurs about any other celebrity, they would get in deep trouble like they did when they um, when Frank Bruno had a breakdown and had to be sectioned and they, The Sun ran a front page. I think it said, Bonkers Bruno Taken to the nut house, something like that. And it caused such a furore that they had to retract the front page and apologize. And yet to this day, they call Michael Jackson wacko jacko. So it's, you know, I think that in Michael Jackson's case in particular, the tabloids in England have been far worse to Michael, But it does seem to be an anomaly. Generally, the British press is actually far more constrained in terms of what it can say about people by our libel laws, which are extraordinarily strict and oppressive uh, to the point where everybody in the world wants to come to England to sue for defamation because they know they'll probably win. And there's a part of that is probably because of when you're suing for defamation, you have to, there are certain things that you have to prove. And one of the things that you have to prove is that it has damaged your reputation. The information that's been published has damaged your reputation. I think probably the reason they got away with it with Michael for so long is that his reputation had been damaged so badly in general that it would be hard. If you've been publicly accused of being a child molester, it's hard to argue that, you know, being called a plastic surgery addict has damaged your reputation. For example, your reputation is already sullied beyond belief. And, you know, as far as the law is concerned, it's notable though that Michael did choose to sue in the UK when there was a photographer who attended the dangerous tour and took some pictures where the lighting cast some strange shadows on Michael's face and made it look like he was disfigured. He clearly was not disfigured. He was photographed hundreds of times in the same week. And in those pictures, he looked absolutely fine. But I think it was the mirror which chose to run those pictures with a headline that said Scarface. I think it was on the front page. It said Scarface and they said that Michael had had such Extraordinarily ex- extensive plastic surgery that he had been scarred. And um, he sued. He sued the Mirror and he underwent uh, an independent examination of his face by a doctor. And the doctor said that Michael was not disfigured. And I think the Mirror settled out of court. And part of the settlement, part of the agreement, was that Michael ended up giving an interview to Piers Morgan, the then editor of the Mirror, which was made available on a one of those expensive phone lines, like an O eight four five number. So <laughs> there was a story in the paper about the interview, but it was like, if you want to listen to Michael's interview, dial 0845 blah blah. Pay about 60 quid a minute or something ridiculous to listen to the audio. That audio's on YouTube is quite interesting. It's the interview where Michael is talking about learning backstage on the history tour of, of the death, of, or not backstage, but learning on the history tour of the death of Princess Diana. And he says, um, the doctor woke me up from my sleep, which is very interesting and revealing sentence. Mm. Anyway, so yes, I that was a long-winded answer. But I think that in Michael's case, the British tabloids have been worse than the American tabloids. Generally speaking, the American tabloids are able to be far worse because they basically, it's almost impossible to sue an American newspaper and win. One thing I'd just
1: like to go back there uh, and talk about, Charlie, is the use of the word Jacko. Now, I have to admit in my early fandom of Michael Jackson, I didn't particularly see an issue with the use of Jacko because in British and Australian culture as well, you'll shorten people's names to nicknames. So people whose surname is Jackson were called Jacko. In fact, to this day, Hugh Jackman, the Australian actor, is referred to as Jacko in some sections of the media here in Australia. So I didn't see the problem. It wasn't until listening to the MJ cast and learning of this uh, monkey character, Jacko Macaco, that I started to understand the racial undertone. So I think you're absolutely correct in saying that the British press is institutionally more racist uh, than many other publications around the world. The other thing about British tabloids that I've found is that they're always seemingly trying to find a headline that is a punchline, not just with regards to Michael Jackson. Let's take, for example, the Scottish Sun, I think it was, that many years ago there's a football match between Inverness Caledonian Thistle, an okay side, and Glasgow Celtic, or Celtic as they're called, who are, you know, one of the top two sides in Scotland who between them and Rangers win everything. Well, Inverness Caledonian Thistle won the game three one, and the newspaper headline the next day was Super Calais go ballistic, Celtic are atrocious. So there's always this want, it seems, from a tabloid newspaper to make a headline that will make you laugh. And unfortunately, there are so many media outlets around Britain, America, and even Australia to to some extent as well, where they see Michael Jackson and the Jackson family as nothing more than a punchline. Summer?
2: I think the issue with the, the British press and the American press is that the British press, for some reason, has a veneer of respectability. Around it. And I think that also there's some weird sort of kind of British kind of superiority that some Americans also buy into. You know, it's almost like the Americans understand that their press is garbage. And, you know, the National Enquirer used to be like the biggest selling paper, or, or, or I think it was a weekly magazine in America. And it used to be the it used to sell millions of copies every week because people were just desperate to read trash. So, you know, you compare that to even now all these years later like you look at the times newspaper which has incredible you know incredible journalism in it but then it's always littered with complete nonsense as well um and i think that's one of the major issues that there's a veneer of respectability around our press and our media which is completely unearned because some of the stuff that they used to write about michael was so outrageous and so kind of disgusting really i mean the story that Charlie was talking about about the uh, Daily Mirror uh, and their front page article where they called Michael Scarface. There's a, there's a context and there's there's a history to that. So, you know, I was a I would have been what in my twenties then. Uh, I was that was during the Dangerous World Tour, and the Mirror's line was very interesting because the Mirror was very anti Michael Jackson up until that point, or they still they still are pretty anti Michael Jackson and. The theory amongst fans was the reason they were so anti-Michael Jackson was because at the Sun newspaper, at the time that front page came out, the entertainment correspondent for the Sun newspaper was a guy called Piers Morgan who used to run the bizarre entertainment section. And Piers Morgan was a massive Michael Jackson fan. And I think I still have some of the newspaper clippings here somewhere. You know, he when the Dangerous album came out he reviewed it 10 out of ten, like lavished praise on it and because of that the sun would get you know exclusive front page covers stories like that i think when the in the closet photo shoot went out there's a picture of michael with his hair slicked back the sun had that on their front page it seemed to be the michael jackson press office were sent or epic press office were sending stuff out to or were getting much more traction with the sun than they were with the mirror so you know those two newspapers were i suppose they still do now but back then before the internet, these newspapers would sell millions of copies a day. And so there was huge competition between them. And so if one of them was pro-Michael Jackson, well, then the obvious response to that would be to be an anti-Michael Jackson paper. So then, you know, on, on the one hand, you've got lavish praise in the sun, then you've got all this kind of negative bile in the in the mirror. And it's interesting. So as Charlie said, you know, fast forward a few years, Piers Morgan then becomes the editor of, this, of the mirror newspaper. <laughs> He's now massively coincidentally working with the sun again. <laughs> and so I, I, think that's a, I think that's a kind of overriding issue is that, you know, when it's published in the British papers, there seems to be a level of respectability about it. You could have the allegations about Wade Robson and from Wade Robson and James Safechuck covered in a really respectful and kind of or given a kind of air of respectability where if you actually drill down into their allegations and their original depositions, a real journalist – would be able to ask some serious questions. And the only journalist who asked any sort of questions of them or of Dan Reed about that documentary, the TV show, 20 years after all of those kind of uh, issues with the Mirror and the Sun newspaper, was Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain. It's just weird how history works itself out, but he was the only person who asked any sort of question. And when he asked Dan Reed a question about Wade and James' motives, Dan Reed crumbled. And because it's live T V there's nowhere to run. Mm. It was so enlightening just to see the chasm of kind of journalistic integrity between an actual old school journalist. Whatever people say about Piers Morgan, he is Died in the wall, British journalist who has been in the game for X amount of years. And then you kind of contrast that with someone who's you know, just started their job at the BBC and they're you know, not going to ask any kind of questions or won't, won't have the confidence to ask the questions that Piers Morgan would probably have the confidence to ask. Mm. But having said all of that, there's something that George Michael said years ago, and I know I've had these arguments with Charlie, who is a journalist, and, and I shouldn't really be telling him how, how to do his job. But George Michael would say regularly, because he was another huge pop star who was subject to... Horrid allegations throughout his life. And he would say that the way the British media would get around libel laws would be for the media owners of X newspaper in the UK, that same media owner would own newspapers in America and they've just published the damning allegation in the American press. Once it's published in the American press, then the British press will just pick it up and say, it has been reported that blah, 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 blah. And that's an easy way to get the same information out without contravening libel british libel laws and no that it still is a contravention of the law i'm just saying that that's what george michael said yeah he was wrong <laughs> that's not that's not true that's not i think true. i think he said was it, it just it just made the libel it made taking libel action more difficult thank you summer that's that's great we, we're
1: going to motor on through now the last couple of questions on the the, the jordan chandler thing sydney taylor says that Taj said on his live stream earlier this year that he still believes Jordan Chandler will come forward. Do you think Taj is saying this because he contacted Jordan or is it just wishful thinking? Do you believe Jordan will ever come forward? I personally don't think he'll ever tell his story. Uh, thank you, Sydney. I think we we probably crossed that one in the, in the previous question. No, I don't think he will personally. Uh, last question on the allegation topic. This is from Rob Seymour in Watford near London. I'd be interested to know how things worked with regards to the 93 Chandler extortion attempt, if it was actually reported to the police and whether they actually investigated it. Also, was it part of the settlement that the extortion charge was dropped and how would that work as you cannot pay someone off to stop them testifying? So how would it be legal to drop the extortion charges? Who wants to jump
0: in with that one? I think that's a really good one for Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) My understanding is that the... Uh, Michael Jackson defense team did file a criminal complaint about alleged extortion. That is part of what led to Barry Rothman's withdrawal from the case. Geraldine Hughes, who was the legal secretary in Mr. Rothman's company, kept a diary, which she later shared with um, Mary Fisher. And parts of that diary were used in the article that Mary Fisher wrote And she had recorded that around the time the extortion complaint was filed, uh, Rothman was overheard shouting in the office to, I think to Evan Chandler, something about, is my ass that's going to jail if this all comes out or something like that. And I know that Mr. Rothman had sincere doubts about the credibility of those allegations, but also had an ethical obligation as a lawyer to do the best he could do for his clients And that information, where that information comes from, will probably end up in the public domain in the next few years. But Mr. Rothman, certainly by the conclusion of the 2005 trial, was making efforts to have it known by the right people that he had never believed the allegations against Michael. But anyway, I think the the extortion attempt, the alleged extortion attempt, was reported to law enforcement. But as you would imagine, law enforcement weren't particularly interested in it. It's also very difficult to prove. That said, there were obviously tape recordings of Evan Chandler trying to negotiate with Michael Jackson's team. So, I mean, you would think that that would be quite compelling evidence. Plus the fact that he's on tape saying things like, if I don't get everything I want, then I'm going to destroy everybody. And this is all moving in accordance to a plan that's not just my own. And Jordan's welfare is irrelevant to him. He just cares about what he's going to make out of the situation. I mean, this is all on tape. The evidence supporting the theory that it was an extortion attempt was quite substantial, certainly more substantial than you would find in almost any extortion case ever. But nonetheless, law enforcement didn't pursue it and it went nowhere. As to whether it's anything to do with the settlement, the formal settlement document has never been made public, so I don't know the answer to that question. Summer? Uh, There's nothing I can really add.
1: Likewise, I can't really add anything either. Uh, So let's move on. Summer, this is a question directed at you. This is from Dr. Andrew Green, who's at Andrew Green 864 with an E. He's in the United States. He says, my question is for Summer. Summer, I follow you on social media and admire the fact that you aren't afraid to get a little political. Michael Jackson transcended a lot of barriers. One of those barriers was politics, as is evident by his fans from around the world and people around him. From rubbing shoulders with the likes of Ronald Reagan and George H. Bush to performing for Bill Clinton at his inauguration and later the Democratic Party, to being beloved by those in countries like communist Russia. What is it about Michael Jackson that you believe attracts people from all political spectrums to him? Also, do you believe that Jackson's music reveals an evolution of his own political beliefs as he got older?
2: Firstly, a big shout out to Andrew. He's been a tower of strength on social media for a lot of the MJ fam. So thank you very much for asking the question. It's a really good question. We could have had an old episode about Michael Jackson's political kind of output and his views and his beliefs. Where do I begin? So I, I, I'm not sure if there's been much of a kind of uh, change in Michael's political beliefs from childhood to adulthood. There's you know there's lots of information about. I think it might even be in Moonwalk in his autobiography where there's a situation where they were, Michael and his brothers as kids were were told on a radio station or someone at Motown who, they were having an interview on, at a radio station and there was the kind of handler from Motown who was basically saying, you know, we don't want to get into anything political. And I think the radio host had asked a political question. There'd been some sort of kind of protests in America at the time and they didn't, I don't think the brothers responded, but as they were leaving, they all raised up a black power salute And he would have been about 10 or 11 years old at the time. Um, So he was always quite involved with the civil rights movement. He was always a backer and a supporter of the civil rights movement. He was always interested in the freedom of people. And that's from childhood to adulthood. And I don't think there was much of a change, really. So when Michael toured Australia, I think it was on the first leg of the Bad Tour in, it would have been late 87, early 88. He had asked his manager to, love, to connect with some of the kind of indigenous Australian uh, orphanages because he, was, he, had such, he felt such a kind of profound connection with indigenous people around the world and people who have been historically oppressed and kind of historically marginalized. There's a woman who ran one of the orphanages who spoke about uh, Michael's visits and how deeply he felt for the children at those orphanages. And the, he, he he was asking so many questions about you know their upbringing and about their the cultural heritage of the indigenous people. So there, there hasn't been that much of a shift, there, or there wasn't that much of a shift. He was always, I think Taj has said on earlier episodes of the MJ cast, that Michael Jackson was an, a natural empath. So he was always connected with the oppressed people. And there's a frame that was used at the end, I think, of the original showing of the They Don't Care About Us prison version of the video. And Michael wanted to be, he said he wanted to be a voice for the voiceless, kind of mirroring what Martin Luther King Jr. has said. And he found deep connections with those people who had historically been oppressed. So that was true of the Indigenous Australians, that you, you, you take Michael from 1987 to 1991, where he's working on the Black and White video and the opening musical sequence of that. The first time we see Michael is with indigenous Americans. The people who he hired to dance around with him were actual indigenous uh, Native Americans. The, The name of the woman escapes me, but the woman who was the mother of the child that he's dancing with, she runs her own film company now. And the only way she was able to run her own film company was because of the association with Michael Jackson. And she spoke lavishly about Michael after he passed. And you look at the recent history of kind of controversies in America of, you know, cultural appropriation and, you know, artists or musicians or film directors hiring dancers or performers to look like people from other countries. And in 1991, Michael Jackson was working with actual Native Americans who performed... With him, you know, and danced with him, and he could he could easily have done everything, whatever everyone else is doing, but he chose not to do that because that wasn't him. So, I don't think there was that much of a kind of change in his life and his political views. He was always very much about supporting the disenfranchised, supporting the oppressed people, and that's true in Australia. That would have been true in America. It seems to also be a family trait as well. So, you know, Janet Jackson, for example, when she was working for UNICEF, traveled to the occupied lands and, you know, visited Palestinian children, which in the current climate is a really kind of for a major celebrity to do that, is a is a massive deal. I don't think it's exclusive to Michael within the Jackson family. I think once he started dealing with the public Fallout of the allegations, he he started to realize that you know what was true of the black man on the street was also true of him. You know, his wealth and his kind of power and his kind of influence didn't insulate him from the toxic racism that was aimed at the black person working as an accountant or the black person working, you know, in the fast food store. He was still subjugated and treated differently because of his race, and I think he recognized. I think he would have recognized that forever really i think everything that he did was motivated by that really and i've always thought that his biggest album was motivated the effort he put into it was motivated by the perceived racism that he felt which a lot of michael jackson fans myself included felt that he suffered at the hands of the grammy nominations for off the wall off the wall was the biggest selling album ever by a black artist at the time it was released and that's a massive achievement because you know, it was released, what, 1979? That's years after all those great Stevie Wonder albums, all the great Motown albums, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, all those amazing albums, and off the wall, outsold all of them. He was completely snubbed at the Grammy Awards, and he felt he was completely snubbed. And his whole motivation for making Thriller was, well, they're not going to be a- able to ignore me now. Mm. So he, a lot of his motivations were driven by his his understanding that he was an outsider, It didn't matter how much of an insider he tried to become. He always felt that he was an outsider. So I don't think there was that much of a change. A part of the question that Andrew asks is about the presidents of America that he either met or he performed at inaugurations for. And one of the things I've said before about Muhammad Ali, actually, because someone's brought this up to me about Muhammad Ali, who was very critical of the American governments that he had to live under and kind of perform under, uh, Muhammad Ali was kind of serenaded by lots of American presidents. I think President Ford was the first, and then I think he went to the White House and met President or Reagan, George Bush Senior, and then George Bush Junior, and Bill Clinton. So he's, he's, you know, he met a, a wide gamut of uh, American presidents. I think the I think the confusion that a lot of people have is that when those celebra- when those artists or celebrities go to the White House, they are endorsing those presidents, whereas the reverse is actually true. Those artists or those performers are being endorsed or celebrated by the presidents. Mm. Um, So when Michael turns up at the 1990, I think it's 1990 where George Bush senior, you know, puts a medallion around him or Ronald Reagan does the same in 1984. It's not an endorsement of the Republican party. It's a, it's Michael Jackson receiving an endorsement from the president of America, whoever that may be.
1: I think when it comes to Michael and his political beliefs. I think he was always quite Switzerland, you know, just sit on the fence and and not really commit in either direction. Although, as you say, he was quite happy to speak out about civil rights or other causes, going to Brazil to film They Don't Care About Us with the logo on his chest. to, To me, it was about inclusivity and trying to involve as many people from as many different cultures as possible. And that goes back his whole life. And the black or white video is
0: a good example of that. Yes, it does irk me sometimes when you see... Firstly, there's a weird problem with Michael's fan community, actually, which is that you do quite often encounter Michael Jackson fans who are racist. <laughs> and I know that Sam has experienced this in particular with one very prominent Michael Jackson fan who accidentally tweeted him from his personal Twitter account rather than his Michael Jackson fan account and when you look down it it was just filled with white supremacist material and there's another quite prominent fan who has had practical aneurysms on social media about the Black Lives Matter movement and is fiercely anti-Black Lives Matter and when challenged about how he squares this with his fandom of Michael Jackson says Michael Jackson didn't believe in race and didn't see race and would never support something like the Black Lives Matter movement, which is such garbage. And you just have to look back to Michael's, it, or even just back to his childhood. You know, firstly, look at who who did he look up to? Who did he admire? Well, you're looking at James Brown. You're looking at Sly and the Family Stone, George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic. He Admired all of these quite revolutionary, outspoken civil rights artists, you know, Sam Cooke, for example. He took forward a lot of their politics. And you can see that all through his work, all through his entire career, he always supported the civil rights movement, for example. Where even as a teenager, he used to appear at rallies, you know, alongside Jesse Jackson. And when Michael gave that interview to Jesse Jackson in um, 2005, during his trial, they were reminiscing about the events that they used to attend together in the 70s. And similarly, there's um, rallies that he attended with Al Sharpton as a teenager. And so Michael was always very aligned with black rights movements and civil rights movements. So the idea that he was apolitical is, is garbage. He's a very political artist. What you see sometimes from some of these fans who wish to deny Michael Jackson's political leanings or his support for black power or black rights movements is they say, well, you know, he, yeah, but he appeared with uh, George Bush or he appeared with Ronald Reagan. And as Summer said, there is a very clear distinction between Michael Jackson endorsing a political party or the, pres- the office of the President of the United States of America endorsing Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson receiving an award from Ronald Reagan or George Bush does not mean that he is endorsing Ronald Reagan or George Bush. And I don't really subscribe to the idea that Michael was Switzerland either, but he was subtle in his political affiliations he didn't go out with banners on or or you know or whatever but there's only one political party whose president he attended and performed at the inauguration for and there's only one political party that he actually raised funds for you know in 2002 Michael was the headliner at a Democratic Party fundraiser you don't do that if you don't support the Democrats you know if you're a Republican you don't participate in a fundraising activity for the Democrats. Michael's politics were very clearly stated throughout his whole life and career, and they were clearly incompatible with being a Republican. <laughs> you know, it's clearly, absolutely incompatible. And you could argue that the video, for example, for black or white, where he smashes the car, which has got all those racial epithets written on it, like no more wetbacks and things like that. clear And KKK rules, I think it says on the window, and he smashes the window. There's a swastika on the window, and he smashes the window, right? So he clearly was anti-racism and was pro-immigration, pro-racial mixing, pro-black rights, you know, he his political affiliations and beliefs are there for anyone who wants to see them to see. And to not see them, I think, is sort of a willful blindness. And I do I, I do find it interesting that Michael is like the biggest black artist in the history of the world ever, and yet he does have this ability to attract racist fans who you do encounter. And I just find that so bizarre. And that was part of Andrew's question, I think, which I don't really know the answer to, which was, what is it about Michael Jackson that manages to attract people from all political persuasions and backgrounds? And that does, unfortunately, include toxic, over-racists who somehow still love Michael Jackson. <laughs> And it's sort of an unresolved question. I don't know. I don't know why that is, but it's very odd.
1: All righty. Next up, we're going to change tack a little bit. Some questions that shouldn't require too much thought, should we say? Quick question from Buster Call, who's at Chris Buster Call. He's in Kansas, in the United States. If a gun was at your head, what do you guys think are the top three Michael Jackson songs that never had videos that absolutely have to be turned into videos? Well, I'll start off on this one, even though I've forgotten what my third one was. The first one I went for was PYT. The second one I went for was Too Bad. Now, I know that Too Bad is included in the Ghosts film. And then the third one I forgot. So I, I sort of have just on the spot thought either Unbreakable from Invincible
2: or want to be starting something. Summer, your thoughts? Really good choices there. Really good question, actually. The first one I would go with would be PYT. I'm thinking Michael, 1983 era. So he's very much in his kind of thriller pomp, looking like he's just come off the Billie Jean set or the thriller set. It's such a great song. So it's so funky. You'd get so much of hopefully kind of MJ ad lib dancing, not, you know, nothing too choreographed. We never even got to see it live, did we? That's a that's a great tragedy. That would be one of them. I think another one I would love to have seen a music video for would be Off the Wall. Yeah. Because that would have been MJ Studio 54 era. And, you know, that's a song that's made for the clubs. The new Beyonce album there's a song with there called Break My Soul. It's the single that's come off the album. And a lot of the kind of sentiment in that song really reminds me of Off the Wall. You've you've left your left work, go and chill, go and enjoy yourself. And Michael in that era that's that's what he was about. He was about escapism. You know, you could listen to him and just kind of mentally just disappear. Quincy Jones described his songwriting. Obviously, he didn't write off the wall, but he described his songwriting as painting. He, you know, Michael would paint. He, he was a painter when it came to kind of writing songs, and he'd create these worlds, and you know, you could mentally just kind of escape into them. And off the wall, maybe you know, the, maybe the benefit of not having a video is that your mind is able to kind of wander, kind of aimlessly when you listen to them, because. I'm not sure about you guys, but it's very difficult for me to listen to Billie Jean without Motown 25 or the image of Motown 25 or even some of the image, imagery from the video. But when you don't have a music video, your mind is just able to escape. So those are two of them. The third one, I would say, would be this time around with Biggie Smalls. And the reason I would say that would be because in the interview, so in it was in 1995, the front the uh, michael was on the front page front cover of the vibe magazine and there was a obviously a massive kind of cover story with him but there was also an interview in that magazine with biggie smalls where he spoke about recording the song and he'd he'd fantasized himself about recording the music video with michael and just kind of i'm not sure how familiar you are with you guys are with biggie smalls his kind of music or his videos but there's a video he he's recorded where he had a whole host of celebrities in a house party and I think that's basically what he was suggesting. Would they, That's how they would have recorded a short film for this time around. Like Michael, you know, hanging out with a whole world of kind of huge celebrities at a house party. It just would have been so otherworldly for Michael to do it, but it would have been so cool as well because the track is so good. Um, so I think those three, but... I should also add that I can also see the value of not having music videos for certain songs because, again, they do just take you into another world. Human Nature is another one that doesn't have a music video. Yeah. but When you listen to it, you mentally you just travel into different spaces.
1: Well, Human Nature has that animated version, but you're right. It would have been nice to have a, a proper one. Charlie?
0: Well, I think that I, for me it's hard to say anything from Thriller or Off the Wall because aside from the Thriller video itself – In that era, the budgets were small and the videos were kind of lame, really, compared to what Michael was able to do subsequent to that. You get to the Bad Album, practically every song on the Bad Album has a video, and some of those videos are really spectacular, like Smooth Criminal. And then you get into Michael's kind of broadening musical spectrum and his era of real kind of creativity and experimentation, which is the – Dangerous History Blood on the Dance Floor era. So mine have all come from there. I think the first one is Dangerous itself because it's a title track. It's a dance song. The choreography and the live performances is amazing, but I always struggle with performances that are lip synced. So it would have been nice to have a video which had that level of amazing choreography in it, which you could just enjoy as a video. My second one, I think, is Tabloid Junkie, because I just would have been very interested to see what he might be able to do with that song, what visual concept he might have come up with to accompany that. And my third one is Morphine. Mm. Again, similarly, Morphine is such an interesting song. I was talking to Summer about it quite recently about morphine and the um, lyrical content and how extraordinary it is that nobody, you know, <laughs> you know, you want to talk about like the media, the media just like ragged on Michael Jackson and hated him and attacked him so much for his whole career. And then he releases a song in which he's quite clearly talking about his drug addiction and they just don't even notice, you know, idiots. It's such a, uh, an intensely personal song and, I just would have been very interested to see how he would have tackled that in video form. Mm. It's almost like something he managed to slip out without anybody noticing it. Maybe that's why there isn't a video for it. Maybe that's why he didn't draw attention to it. But it, it just would be very interesting. Would he, po- would he position himself as the addict in that video? What, how, would he, uh, how would he handle that in video form, I think, would be very interesting.
1: We've actually got a question coming up about that very song. So that's, it's great that you mentioned that. And I've just remembered what my third choice was. So scratch my original answer. I'm going to go with PYT, Too Bad. And then the third one was Threatened. I'd love to see a modern version of, uh, of that sort of genre. Anyway, thank you for those answers. Next question comes from Andrew Gray, who's in Chicago, Illinois. What are your favourite MJ books? Summer, we'll go with you.
2: Oh, good question. Well, obviously, everyone should have a copy of Moonwalk. It's obviously heavily censored, obviously uh, heavily edited, and kind of very top line. But it gives you, uh, you know, there's some great stuff in there about Michael's childhood and his upbringing. The next choice is going to be quite controversial, I imagine. But the first edition of J. Randy Tarabarelli's uh, biography on Michael, I think was absolutely essential for a Michael Jackson fan to purchase again that might be controversial i might get cancelled so let's see how that goes but that, <laughs> i'm talking about the very first, the f- very first edition which i had from i think 1990 which was an amazing amazingly comprehensive book and quite sympathetic actually to michael but you know not deliberately so just painted him as a very sympathetic figure a book that i had for years which i never really understood until i was much older and probably after michael passed was dancing the dream and the reason I say I never understood it because I, you know, as a, when I, when it came out, I was probably 19 or 20. I wasn't a very kind of complicated individual. I wasn't, you know, very worldly. I didn't know much about the world. So I actually bought it just for the amazing photos in there. Um, and the stories and the poems in there, you know, to a 19, 20 year old kid didn't really kind of mean anything, to be honest. But as I've gotten older and understood the kind of, influence of Deepak Chopra in Michael's life and his beliefs and recognizing now the kind of Sufism in some of the poetry. I just it, it just gives me a greater understanding of the man and also a greater appreciation of him. So there's the poem about the dance and how, you know, the more he the more Michael dances, the, the, the only thing that exists is the dance at the end of it. And as a child, as a teenager, I, that meant nothing to me. I didn't understand any what he was talking about. Now I completely understand it. Now he's talking, he's, what he's actually talking about is the state of Nirvana and he's talking about the state, in, in, in Sufic language, he's talking about the state of extinction and uh, becoming one with uh, becoming one with yourself and one with the, the universe. That's what he's talking about. But at the time, I didn't understand any of it. You have to be an adult, a grown adult to really kind of get, get into the depths of it. And I think you learn a lot about Michael Jackson from that book. Charlie.
0: Well, I'm going to join the cancelled list and say um, <laughs> J. Randy <laughs> J. Randy But I've never read the first edition. I read a subsequent edition, the one uh, that came out, I think, before, just before the trial. The front cover was Michael under the umbrella at the Exeter event in 2002. And to me, it's a very even-handed and extremely well-researched book. And the complaints that I see about it from fans tend to be quite juvenile. And ridiculous so for example they'll say things like oh there's a scene in the book where michael gets angry and swears and michael would never swear and just go oh, grow up you know what are you talking about it's, it's so pathetic
1: he literally says the f word on scream screen
0: yes it's pathetic some of the fans criticisms of that book is basically because it doesn't portray michael as being 100 percent lovely all the time uh, it presents him as being a, a, a you know a rounded human being with different facets and emotions and and behaviors. They just can't cope with it because Michael, in some fans' eyes, is this sort of deity, and they just can't imagine him being ever being selfish or anything like that. But you know, Michael was a human being, and to address you know if you want to give an accurate account of his life, you have to talk about times when he did stuff that was maybe not nice to other people. I mean, like stealing Jermaine's producers, for example. That, that was a really horrible thing that Michael did to Jermaine at that time, where he found out that Jermaine was working, I think, with Babyface and L.A. Reed, and j- just decided to steal them. And they didn't use anything, did he? he? just? He did it purely to take them away from Jermaine, to sort of sabotage him and then didn't ever release any of the songs that he worked on with them. They were angry about it. Jermaine was angry about it. It was just Michael engaging in sort of petty sibling rivalry. And that's the kind of thing that all people do at some time in their lives. Nobody is a perfect human being. But when it comes to Michael and somebody tells that story, the fans get really angry and and hate it and say, this is a hater book and you're evil. Why are you attacking Michael? (laughs) It's just uh, a lot of their criticisms of that book and of coverage in Michael, of Michael Jackson in general is just very juvenile. I think Jay Randy Tarabarelli's book is extremely deeply researched. And I, I know Jay Randy. I ended up meeting him in 2010 and have met him a number of times since then. And I have spoken to him quite extensively about how he researches his books, and they are extraordinarily well researched. And I think it is, at the moment, the definitive Michael Jackson biography. The, the ultimate definitive biography has never been written. If you look at people like Orson Welles, for example, there are like multi-volume biographies of Orson Welles. One day, somebody will need to do that for Michael Jackson but it's not been done yet. The other two books that I would quickly mention that I think were great is um, the one by the bodyguards about Michael's final years, I thought was extremely good, extremely revealing about the problems that Michael was dealing with in his later years. And also I thought Jermaine's book was excellent as well. Yeah. Uh, I might join the
1: cancelled list with my choices here. Now, I've got to be honest, the The first book I ever read was the J. Randy Terraborelli uh, I must have been around the 2003 edition also with the – I think I did buy it because it was Michael at Exeter or in that outfit that he wore at Exeter on the front. And being a Devon boy at heart, I had to go with that even though I missed that event that day because I had to work. So, that was the first book I read. The next book I think I read was several years later was The Michael Jackson Conspiracy by Aphrodite Jones. And and then after that, it was the Frank Cassio one. And there's still a few books I'm yet to read, like Alien Madala and Talitha Linehan. I haven't read their books yet, but I I do plan to. But by far and away, I think the best one that I've read is Bill Whitfield and Javon Beard's Remember the Time, Protecting the King of Pop in His Final Days. I think that's a real good insight into Michael's last few years. I've actually been lucky enough to visit uh, a few of the locations that they mentioned in the book, in particular Goodstone Inn, In Virginia had a very nice meal there so if you're in that area go and give it a a try don't go in there and say I'm here because Michael Jackson stayed here Uh, but I had a very good meal there and it was very high class and high quality all righty moving on Uh, this question is from MJ unreleased mix So that's at MJ unreleased mix, no location given. How different do you think the last decade of Michael's life would have been if the bridge collapse in Munich 99 at MJ and Friends never happened? If he isn't on painkillers, does the Bashir documentary still happen? The trial, this is it. Might he still be here today? Charlie.
0: Well, I think that the question presupposes that had the bridge not collapsed, Michael would not have been using any kind of meds. Whereas I'm not personally convinced that that is the case. As I said earlier, there was the interview that Michael did with Piers Morgan, where he talked about learning of the death of Princess Diana. And he said, the doctor woke me up from my sleep. So Michael clearly was still using some kind of medications that he shouldn't have been subsequent to having been in rehab in 94 and prior to the bridge collapse. And actually... If you read the evidence of Dr. Farshan, who... Uh, so Dr. Farshan was an addiction specialist who was working with Michael in the early 2000s to try to help him to beat his dependency on opioids. And he gave evidence in the AEG trial, quite substantial, detailed evidence about his work with Michael. And what he said in his evidence, was that he and Michael tried a number of different therapies, including an implant. There was a therapy that Michael agreed to where they put an implant into his body, which meant that if he was injected with opioids, this implant would counteract the influence of the opioids. So essentially, he would not get any buzz from the drug. And the idea was that if you have this implant and the drug doesn't do what it's supposed to do, then you will have no reason to take the drug anymore and it will kill your addiction. That was one of the therapies. Michael was also attending group therapy to talk about his addiction with other people that had dependencies. And Dr. Farshan says that Michael kicked his addiction several times and then relapsed. And Mike Leperouc, who was Michael's Security guard, one of his bodyguards at the time, gives similar evidence. So he told the court during those early 2000s, Michael would have long periods where he was clearly under the influence most of the time. But then he would also have long periods where he seemed to be clean and clear eyed and thinking straight. And then all of a sudden he'd be back on the stuff again. So I think that addiction is a complex condition. And the idea that Michael had beaten it and that the the only reason he was taking meds was because of the bridge collapse, I just don't think that's right. He had become dependent, weaned himself off, become dependent, weaned himself off a number of times before he did the Bashir interview, a number of times before even uh, some of the uh, Arviso stuff happened and so on and so forth. So I just don't really accept the premise of the question full stop. I think that to attribute everything to the bridge collapse is maybe a bit simplistic. Yeah,
2: similarly to Charlie, I think it's a bit of a simplistic kind of point to make. Obviously, it had detriment, massively detrimental effects on Michael. Um, physically, if you look at him from that 90, 1999, isn't it, the MJ and Friends? From that point onwards, he never even looks the same, to be honest, after that. And I remember watching the Martin Bashir interview and there's a section in the interview, I think it's in the very first part of the interview, where Michael's in the recording studio and he's wearing a red silk shirt and Bashir asks him if he wants to dance and he he dances a little bit. He does, I think he does a moonwalk. But if you look at him carefully, he's wearing a back brace as he's doing it. So it, it clearly had massively damaging effects on his physicality. But yeah, everything Charlie said is correct. I, I believe is correct that whenever MJ was on tour or had like serious work that he needed to do, he needed to sleep. And I think that the only way that he found he was able to spend any time with his eyes closed was under under the influence. And interestingly, actually, as we were talking about morphine earlier, the lyric we were talking, myself and Charlie had been talking about on text message was his trying hard to convince her to give him more of what he had because today he wants it twice as bad. And that's so revealing and so kind of tragic, really, If you, in hindsight, if you think about it, how much of himself he put into his own work. And, you know, like we've spoken about, that the press don't even pick up on it. They don't even, like, regard it. You know, it's not even kind of spoken about. But everything you ever wanted to learn about Michael's last few years, you know, you could trace back to that, really.
1: Yeah, agreed. And we're actually coming to that question up next. I think the question is asking for an opinion as to what we think may have happened. I think with regards to his his painkiller dependency, that predates the the accident in Germany, as we're about to, to hear from the 1997 song Morphine. To summarize, would he have done the Martin Bashir interview? Who knows? He was duped into that I think we can safely say, given what we know now about Martin Bashir and how he obtained the Princess Diana interview, which after all was the reason that Michael did that interview in the first place, if he does not do that Bashir interview, does the trial happen? Anyone's guess, but you know that the Santa Barbara Sheriff's Department and in particular Tom Snedden, were out to to find something on him. So whether the trial happens in 2004 and 2005 or at a later date when something else comes along, who the hell knows? Alrighty, let's get to Eva's question. Eva from Amsterdam has asked, do you believe that the song Morphine was a cry for help? And are you aware if anyone responded to that at the time and quotes obviously a lot of lyrics? And she says those last lines could even be the soundtrack to the scene between Dr. Murray and Michael Jackson in the moments before he died. Charlie.
0: Well, I don't know if it's a cry for help, but it's one of the most interesting and personal songs Michael ever released. And I remain shocked to this day, to be honest, that he did release it because Michael was so image conscious that it's hard to imagine how he arrived at the decision to put this song into the public domain when it is talking about his own painkiller dependency. You know, this is a guy who Famously in interviews would just skirt around any kind of difficult issue would pretend that problems didn't exist it's remarkable that this song came out and is an extraordinary song. I hated it as a kid that's the uh, you know as a as a kid as a Michael Jackson fan I would never ever listen to morphine. I just hated it. it was just so monotonous, but I think that's the point <laughs> and it's such a clever song as well how you know part of the composition part of the song is the sound of a hospital ventilator you know and then you've got the sample the elephant man movie sample this it's just such an interesting piece of work but was it a cry for help i don't know if it was a cry for help the official story seems to be that by the time that track was released he was not using anymore you know, if you believe that it was the bridge collapse that reignited the dependency, that's the official story that people tend to tell those that were around Michael. But I don't know if anybody really truly knows, to be honest. I think there was some kind of testimony in the AG trial that there was medication use occurring on the history tour. But I don't know whether it was painkillers or whether that was propofol. I just don't have that clear a memory.
2: It's a really good question. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's so much of a cry for help but as it is just Michael documenting his life. There's an interview Michael gave, I think it was the 60 Minutes interview in would have been 2004, 2005, where he makes the point of, if anyone wants to know me, listen to my songs, listen to my music. And he points to childhood as one of the songs, but there's so many songs of his that you can learn so much about him you're never going to find in interviews or in press coverage or anything like that. And I think one of the reasons I think for that is because there was always a lot of litigation around Michael. So he could say things in music that he probably couldn't say in an interview. A really good example of that is on the History album. There's lots of lyrics about him being set up, him being extorted, him being kind of blackmailed, which he's able to put into song form, but he would never be able to say in an interview because he'd been caught every single day of his life. So he's able to put it into his music, uh, stuff that he's not able to talk about publicly. And I think his music was a really cathartic way of him documenting his life. I mean, there's a song, you know, that was released on the Bad 25 collection called The Abortion Papers. And there's a lot of speculation about which woman that is about in particular. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of speculation that it's about Janet Jackson, actually, you know, about the backstory of him and his family's You know religious views and how it kind of seemed to kind of contradict the act of abortion. That's speculation. That's fan speculation. I'm not saying that's what I'm saying, but I'm just saying that's what fans have said. And it's a way of documenting what's happening in his life. And it's it must have been massively cathartic because he can't obviously talk about it publicly.
1: Charlie, next question is for you. This is from Rachel Dusty in Dubai. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. It says. I recall in one of the episodes, Charles went to the US and was helping Taj for his documentary and reviewing materials. And he shared a story of Michael dancing with Jermaine while having a bandage on his nose, but he did not share anything else with us. If it's not an intrusion, I'd like to have more insight on what he saw and reviewed in that trip and
0: share more insights with us. So part of the material that we reviewed was a large quantity of paperwork, which was found in Michael's home when he passed away and lots of handwritten notes, lyrics, correspondence between himself and others. There was some um, uh, records that he was working with Rod Temperton again shortly before he died. There was a lot of material in there. And then the other material that we reviewed was that we went to Hamid his studio, and we spent the best part of a full day sitting in the studio with Hamid going through footage of Michael that he possessed that nobody had ever seen. There was a lot of footage or you know, just general documentary footage of Michael on visits with Marcel Marceau, on visits with Nelson Mandela. There was footage of Michael's vacations. There was footage of Michael's trip to London to protest against Sony. There was Madison Square Garden's 2001 rehearsal footage. That was rehearsal footage from Madison Square Garden itself, but also footage prior to that, which was in a rehearsal studio with the brothers. That was the footage that the person who asked the question is talking about, where Michael was dressed, I think, in a blue suit. And not looking a million dollars, but performing extremely well. The rehearsals were better than the show, for sure. Those rehearsals in that. It's like a big mirrored rehearsal studio, I think. I mean, it's a few years since I've seen it now. It's just Michael and the brothers rehearsing their set over and over again. And Michael's just fantastic. He looks live and into it and energetic. Everything that he doesn't look on the night. And yes, there was a moment in that footage where they were between rehearsals and whoever was sat at the piano, for whatever reason, began playing Stranger in Moscow. And Hamid happens to have the camera trained on Michael, just sort of stood in his own world in the middle of this rehearsal studio during a break, and Michael just starts singing the song. And then at some point, Jermaine wanders into shot and start singing all the backups. <laughs> it's just the most uh, extraordinary piece of footage. You know, this, this beautiful moment which just happened completely impromptu and probably Michael didn't even realize was being filmed because they were on a break and he wasn't on the stage. He was just stood in the middle of this big room, sort of singing to himself, really. And it's just a, a really lovely moment. But as I say, it's it's also it's not a very flattering piece of footage because Michael has this big sort of piece of tape or something stuck to his nose and it's really protruding from his face. It's, it almost looks like a, a witch's nose or something. Is so big, this piece of tape that's hanging off his face. So it's, it's not really viable as footage that could be released. Anyway, yes, yeah, so I mean, to tell you everything that we reviewed on that trip would be ridiculous. It would take hours and hours, but yeah, there was some real interesting stuff. Uh, Dave Edwards asks, here's my question for
1: Charles Thompson. Are you still involved with Taj Jackson's documentary, Rewriting History? And if so, can you give any updates on its status?
0: Uh, Right. So as I understand it, this was the most commonly asked question when the questions came in for this episode. And so last night I had a long conversation with Taj to see whether there was anything that he was happy for us to share on the show, any kind of update. Now, it just happens coincidentally that there has been a substantial development on the project this week, which yesterday Taj announced or the day before Taj announced that he was going to be announcing in a live stream. And that live stream is due to happen on Saturday. And this episode is due to come out after that live stream. So Taj has condensed what he's going to be announcing in that live stream into a statement, which he has allowed us to read out on the MJ cast. So I'm just going to read this to you as written. Thanks to the continued support, crowdfunding, and patience of Michael's fans, Taj is signing a financial deal that will fund an 11-episode MJ docuseries called Rewriting History. Rewriting History will be produced independently without the outside influence of major studios and networks. Taj will also maintain complete creative control and final cut. The main priority for Taj was that because it was Michael Jackson and his uncle, it had to be done right. Quality and accuracy are paramount. With this extra funding and support, it will live up to the standards Michael would have wanted and more importantly, deserves. Taj feels fully confident that the docu series will be completely filmed edited and presented to distributors by the end of 2023 yes so the, the the announcement there essentially is that taj is about to sign a deal for outside funding which will cover the production costs for the entire series uh this is something that he's been working on for several years and uh, is finally coming to fruition so it's great news Next question has come in anonymously from Damian Shields. Why
1: do you think it is that fans invest so heavily in the reporting of Roger Friedman around certain subjects? like the allegations, given that Michael publicly denounced his journalistic integrity while accusing Friedman of writing what Michael described as vicious and untrue stories in an attempt to destroy my image throughout the last decade of Michael's life. Moreover, since Michael's death, Friedman has spent 12 years relentlessly perpetuating the lies of Eddie Cassio, James Port, Sony and the estate regarding their fake songs, during which he has used his platform to call fans deranged, bitter, stupid nuisances and Michael's family greedy and jealous. Why do fans hold this man up so highly regarding some topics given his egregious conduct on others?
2: I think the answer to that is Friedman covered the Michael Jackson case in 2005 and was one of the only, quote, dissenting voices in the mainstream press. So he was the only one who was actually covering the Jackson side of the story, really. Everyone else was going with what the prosecution was saying, and we're never covering actually how the prosecution were getting torn to shreds in court day after day. And that gives him the fig leaf of kind of respectability, I guess, or fig leaf of kind of being on the side of the righteous, really, which is all bullshit. But I absolutely am not a supporter of Roger Friedman. I I think his commentary and his coverage of Michael Jackson has been absolutely abysmal. And, you know, he's made jokes about paedophilia Jokes about the title of Michael's song. Do you know where your children are? This is not someone that I don't believe that Michael Jackson fans should be reading or listening to his coverage of the 2005 trial. You know, all he did really was what every other journalist should have been doing, which is covering the trial and covering the kind of spectacular crumbling of the prosecution's case. The fact that the rest of the world of journalism didn't do that doesn't exonerate Friedman in any way. And everything Damien has said, is, he's basically said everything you need to hear about him. Friedman is probably the only journalist that Michael Jackson has ever kind of released a press statement about. So that, I think, tells its own story.
1: Yeah, very much so. I have nothing to say about Roger Friedman.
0: Charlie? I would just uh, agree with everything Sam said. So essentially, this is a case of fans with particular interests seeking out people that have said things that they agree with, and then promoting those things. So it's it's a human nature thing that everybody does. We all look to have our own beliefs reaffirmed. So if you are one of the fans whose online identity is very closely associated with tackling the allegations against Michael then for you, Roger Friedman is a great resource because, as Sam says, he is one of the only journalists who attended the trial and reported in real time about the way that the prosecution's case was completely disintegrating. Everybody else was lying. Every, all, almost the entire media was only covering the prosecution case. They were covering it in a very almost sycophantic way, Um, they would never tell you when the prosecution had a bad day. If a witness came on the stand and said something awful about Michael Jackson, but then got completely discredited, they just wouldn't tell you that that witness got completely discredited. They were totally invested in hyping up the trial, making it sound sensational and really bad for Michael Jackson, and they desperately wanted a conviction. Roger Friedman was one of the only journalists who reported truthfully on that trial. So if you're a fan who's obsessed with the trial and whose whole identity online is about tackling allegations against Michael, Roger Friedman is a god to you. But if you are a fan who cares about Michael Jackson's artistic legacy and about the sanctity of his discography, then Roger Friedman is an enemy because he has spent the last 12 years deliberately dismissing, downplaying, denying the existence of quite a large amount of evidence that the Casio tracks are fake. And as Sam says, and as the question says, uh, attacking anybody who suggests that the songs are fake in quite venal ways. So, yes, I mean, he, he is uh, a complex figure, you know, I guess it comes back to what I was saying about the J. Randy Tarabaroli book earlier. No human being is purely good and no human being is purely bad. Everybody is somewhere in the middle. Everybody does good things in their life and everybody does bad things in their life. And we've seen the good and the bad of Roger Friedman. And I think fans just tend to pick and choose which bits of Roger Friedman they rely on depending on what their interests are.
1: Okay, this one comes in from Emmett in Ireland. Hi lads, I've always been fascinated with the cancelled HBO December 1995 show that MJ had planned but obviously didn't happen. We always had the visual of Michael performing in stadiums to a sea of people but I'm sure there is a large proportion of Michael's fan base that would love to have seen a more intimate, less pomp and circumstance concert that focused on his singing ability rather than the usual MJ style that we got from bad to history world tours. From what I understand, this concert was going to be just that. And it's always been a sore spot for me that we never got to see it. Does any of the panel know if any footage exists of Michael rehearsing for that show? We all know he recorded nearly everything relating to his performances. So perhaps there is something in a vault somewhere. Why was the show never rescheduled? Was he unhappy with the production of it? I always wished he'd done a stripped down show, but unfortunately it was never to be. Long time listener and love the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks Emmett.
2: Uh, I think the best coverage of the 1995 show that never happened would probably be Damien Shields' article. He wrote an article on his blog about it. There must be footage of rehearsals because Michael recorded everything. I think what Michael's intentions originally were, were to create a Michael Jackson unplugged sort of event. But even then, I'd heard that there was still going to be massive choreography We've seen the press conferences with Marcel Marceau. There was going to be still lots of kind of performance, which would have kind of deviated from the kind of usual MTV Unplugged sort of thing. And I think that that's what fans had been crying out for, really, because the MTV Unplugged format had become so successful and so popular and had, had been the making of so many stars at the time. I remember tweeting recently about Mariah Carey that before she did her MTV Unplugged There'd been lots of speculation in the press about her that she was uh, a recording studio construct, that she couldn't be as good as she was on record. And then when she recorded her MTV Unplugged episode, she was so phenomenal, so incredible that, you know, the kind of disbelief that people had listening to her and seeing her dissipated as soon as they saw the MTV Unplugged show. The same was very true of George Michael. George was obviously massively established as a musician, as an as a performer. But his MTV unplugged performance just showed him at his most raw and as, at his most base. And he was just it just kind of elevated him for so many people. And the same would have been true of Michael. Michael just wasn't into people kind of getting a behind the scenes peek. He he just wasn't open source in that way. He was more Apple than Microsoft. Let's put it that way.
0: Well, as far as what footage exists of the HBO show, we know that at least some of it was filmed because there is footage out there of Michael dancing with um, Marcel Marceau, although I think that might have been a press conference. I think that from reading Damien's article, and also I think based on some stuff that Michael Prince said on his episode of the MJ cast, even if it started out as some kind of MTV unplugged style thing, some sort of stripped back Michael Jackson, it did seem to balloon or mushroom back into a source of a huge extravaganza, arguably even more of an extravaganza than a typical Michael Jackson concert. And I think that there were plans for a wildly souped up dangerous performance and various other bits and pieces. So had it happened, I wouldn't hold out too much hope for it, Have actually having actually turned into an MTV Unplugged style thing. I think it probably would have been a big lip-synced choreography fest. As to why it never got rescheduled, my suspicion is that Michael never really wanted to do it, or he might have wanted to do it in the early stages and then increasingly fallen out of love with the idea as it developed. There was no, uh, there was no part of Michael Jackson that we saw in that era which suggested that he was somebody who enjoyed performing, who had any interest in singing live. In fact, he's on record, you know, through various people that he told over the years that he didn't want to be on stage performing when he was 40. He hated touring, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. So it's almost better that it has remained what could have been rather than actually coming to fruition, I think. Had it come to fruition, I don't think it would have been what we all would have liked it to be.
1: Okay, we have a few questions here from our very own Jamin Bull in Brisbane, Australia. Thank you, Jamin. I hope you and the family are well. The first couple of questions are aimed at both of you, Charlie and Summer. Firstly, you've both spoken about Invincible before, with Charlie being critical of the album and Summer being supportive of it. Is there some common ground that could be reached?
2: No, no is the answer. (laughs) It's war. (laughs) And what makes it funny, what makes it funny is like contemporaneously when the album came out or when, you know, we used to talk about it on the forums years ago, like none of us are, I mean, none of us are going to buy invincible over off the wall, right? We're not going to buy invincible over thriller or bad or history or dangerous. But, you know, 20 odd years later, I can listen to the album now and there's some songs on there that. People remember the album for being very kind of mechanical, being having a really metallic, mechanical sound to it, which is, I think, the problem with that, or the reason that problem came about was because of the way the album opens with the three Rodney Jerkin songs. And actually, there are acoustic moments on the album, and there are moments where it's just Michael singing with real instruments, which, you know, MJ fans have been crying out for for years. MJ was in his late 30s, early 40s. By the time they, they recorded the album, his voice had a stronger rasp to it. He was still an incredible singer and an incredible performer. And there's still some gems on the album. So it's not like the whole album should be trashed. I, I did listen to the uh, Round Table And I think the album could have done with some trimming. I think it could have been kind of edited. But I think there are some absolutely incredible rec- songs on there. And one of the songs I always talk about is Don't Walk Away. I Know Charlie Hates It. We've had lots of arguments over the years about it. But again, the lyrical content of it, I don't think Michael wrote it, but the lyrical content of it is so stunning, really, to think of Michael going into the recording studio in his late 30s after being accused of the most kind of heinous crimes and singing about why have all my dreams been broken? It's one of those situations you see where a music video wouldn't actually help. It's amazing that we don't have a music video because you can imagine the atmosphere of Michael going into the studio to record those lyrics and the kind of passion and the kind of plea in his performance is so incredible that it's almost like a last kind of chance for us to see how incredible a performer he was. And it's one of the last great kind of vocal performances, I think, of his career. Um, so there's some real highlights. There's some lowlights, I guess. But the highlights on there are, 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 I mean, something like Butterflies, for example, is so beautiful. And his performance on there is so incredible. If you've ever heard the a cappella of it, I mean, it's just mind boggling, really. So there's always space to go back and
0: revisit Invincible, I think. We got a lot of heat for that Invincible round table, which I thought was undeserved, Frankly, because when the episode finished recording, I was actually a bit fed up with it because I was aggrieved by how sort of fawning and overly positive I felt it had been (laughs) about the album. Um, You know, there were people on that episode who were extremely positive about the Invincible album. James L.A. was extremely positive and. Sean Shackelford was extremely positive, I thought, about the album. Jamin in many points was positive about the album. I didn't feel that the criticism was unmerited, unfair, or particularly overreact I I thought that um, actually by the time it finished, we'd taken an extremely bad album and and created a a round table which pretended it was better than it actually was. That said, after we recorded that episode, having taken on board what James Allais and Sean Shackelford in particular had been saying about certain songs, I decided to re-listen to Invincible and see if I could understand their perspectives and if I could find some kind of newfound appreciation for the album so i went on a long walk and decided to listen to it as i went which is how i generally listen to music and i got to about 2000 watts i think it was 2000 watts i got to and i just had to turn it off i just couldn't do it i just could not continue to inflict it on myself and I just am not hearing what they're hearing. I'm really sorry. You know, I would love to love it. You know, I would love to love that album. That would be nice, you know, to have something extra of Michael to want to listen to sometimes, but I just can't do it. It just is so awful. Michael's vocals in many instances are very bad, you know, among the worst vocals of his entire career. He sounds like he's ill or like his nose is blocked up or something. He sounds hoarse on some of the songs. Sam talks about how fans have been crying out to hear Michael singing with real instruments and in a more acoustic type setting. That is true. It would have been nice, though, if the songs had been good. You know, it's all very well saying Michael's singing live with real instruments. Yeah, great. But is the song worth listening to? overwhelmingly as far as invincible is concerned i think the songs are not good they're not worth listening to michael appears to have had very little creative input a lot of the songs have like seven or eight different writers on them i just can't get on board with it that said i did discover a new appreciation for the lost children not in this not the song itself i still think it's an awful song but What James L.A. was saying about the soundscape that Michael created was something that I had never really noticed or appreciated before. It is extraordinary. It's uh, the way that that song is mixed when you listen to it in your headphones. You can hear things going on around you. You can hear birds flapping their wings and, you know, maybe bees buzzing around or something. I can't remember now. It was a few months ago. But it, it was an amazing soundscape that was created it's just a shame about the song that it was created for
1: when it comes to invincible i'm a bit of a fence sitter really in that i don't think it, it's a terrible album but i don't think it's a particularly strong one either it's certainly not michael's strongest album despite what some fans might say but it's certainly not the worst album out there when you're comparing to other michael jackson albums then yeah it's not a particularly good album when you compare it with off the wall and thriller and bad and dangerous and history but it's not a terrible album i do think it kind of sounds dated which is crazy to say when you think that off the wall thriller and bad still sound fresh whereas invincible which was released in 2001 sounds like it's from 20 years ago you know it sounds dated perhaps it's those first three songs unbreakable heartbreaker and invincible there are some really good songs on that album i really like you rock my world I really like Butterflies, I really like Threatened, I quite like Breaker Dawn, bit of a change up, but there are some stronger songs in my opinion that were left off that album which we spoke about on that particular round table. So was it his strongest work? Absolutely not. Was it terrible? I don't think so. Okay, Jamin's next question. Similarly to my Invincible question, you both got very different opinions on Janet Jackson as an artist. Again, could some common ground be reached?
2: Absolutely no chance. Janet Jackson is a phenomenon, and you have to understand the history of the music industry, but also culture to understand what a phenomenon Janet Jackson is. And the reason I'm able to kind of speak about that, because I was a teenager when Control came out, and I was of an age where you could understand the cultural significance of Janet Jackson. Up until Janet Jackson, the presentation of black women in popular music was Whitney Houston, Diana Ross, who were amazing performers, but the presentation of them was completely different to someone who was as kick-ass and badass as Janet, who was going on stage, dancing, recording incredible records. And she was the future. We recognised that she was the future, not not to diminish anyone else, but she was the future of where pop music entertainment was going to go. And you could see that in 1986. And she was a kind of cultural phenomenon. She changed the way things happened from that point onwards. Up until 1986, there was no one like her. So it's really hard, I understand, in the cold light of day in 2022, to understand why Janet is such a kind of cultural phenomenon. There is, I suppose there's a part of it that you had to be there. You had to be there to understand
0: what she represented. I think that some common ground has just been reached, because what Sam seems to be saying is that I think he used the phrase, in the cold light of day, he, understa- he said, I understand in the cold light of day of 2022 that it might be difficult to understand why Janet was so great. So what Sam seems there to me to be saying is that the importance of Janet Jackson was more about her cultural significance and the barriers she was breaking down in the era in which she was operating it is more about that than it is about Janet's talent what i i have never attacked janet jackson and i don't think it's fair to portray me as having attacked her or or you know been particularly nasty or abusive about janet at all i think what i said in the janet episode was that as somebody who'd never been a particular Janet Jackson fan, I had hoped that her documentary series would explain to me why she had the cultural significance that she had and why it is that she's held up as an amazing legend of pop music. And that I came away from her documentary series really none the wiser because it sort of went into quite a lot of detail about the recording of the Control album, and then seemed just to skip over the entire rest of her career and not really go into any detail about any of it at all. I mean, I'm not a particular Janet fan, but me saying I'm not a particular Janet fan doesn't amount to me mounting some sort of horrendous attack on Janet Jackson. (laughs) I've never attacked Janet Jackson. I've never... Been extremely critical of Janet Jackson or anything like that. It just seems to be oversensitive snowflake fans who just think that if you're not fawning over someone, then you're a hater, which is, you know, absurd. It's absurd behavior. I think I said on the episode there are some Janet songs that I like. I appreciate Janet's political positions that she's taken. I like the fact that she was an outspoken supporter of the gay community. I like the fact that she took a stance on the AIDS pandemic and she even built it into her work. But the music just doesn't resonate with me. And to me, it sounds like we've just found the common ground there because Sam is saying... He understands how in 2022, when you look at Janet's material in the cold light of day, it might be difficult to understand why people loved it as much as they did. And that is my position. That's the position that I took in the discussion about the Janet documentary was that I said I, I accepted that Janet was a huge legend of music but I sort of didn't really understand why, because although I like some of her records, none of it's ever particularly resonated with me. That's not an outrageous criticism. It's not an attack. It's not some source of, you know, warfare against Janet Jackson. It's a perfectly reasonable and level-headed position to take, and I maintain that position. You know, Janet seems like a lovely person. I have complete respect for Janet's achievements, I'm just not a huge Janet Jackson fan. And if that that amounts to (laughs) some sort of outrageous attack on Janet Jackson, then I'm afraid you're a bit thin-skinned.
1: I think I'm going to sit on the fence again in that I don't know if I can call myself a Janet Jackson fan. And the reason I say that is because I just don't have enough knowledge, no pun intended, of her full discography. But I really, really like Janet. If she was nearby, I'd try and go and see her. I'd love to meet her. In fact, a few years ago, some colleagues at somewhere I was working at the time got to meet her and I was quite jealous of that. But I don't know if I've got the right to call myself a fan just purely because I don't know enough of her discography, especially not on the level of Cousin Cam and Cousin Courtney who present the Janet Jackson podcast and shout out to those girls. I was on the episode where we had them on to discuss the documentary and I sort of agree with what Charlie is saying, which is if you're looking for what it was about Janet Jackson that made her a superstar you know the anatomy of her craftsmanship to use a phrase that Michael used I don't think you're going to get that from the documentary having said that you do get a lot from the documentary you get a more of an understanding of who she is as a person some of her background the reason behind some of her decisions and I learned things that I had no idea about before like the Coca-Cola deal uh, a little bit more detail into what happened at the Super Bowl although obviously not Massive amounts of detail there. And I came away from the documentary liking Janet Jackson even more than I already did. To this day, I still really love All For You. I think it's a great song. I still think that Janet Jackson is one of the most beautiful women there's ever been in the entertainment industry. But do I have enough of a knowledge of her discography to call myself a fan? Uh, Do you know what? Yes. Yeah, I like Janet Jackson, therefore I'm a fan, but I'm clearly not at the level of fandom as the cousins. Okay. Next question is from Shawnee, who's at Shawnee Kane on Twitter. I felt the discussion regarding MJ, the musical on a past episode was rather unfair. And I disagreed with almost a hundred percent of the guest review. I've seen the show three times by the time that particular episode had aired since it's continued success and accolades. Are you more inclined to now want to see it?
2: Um, I'm really happy that MJ, the musical is successful um, and it's been receiving accolades I remember Taj and 3T giving an interview. I think it was on Good Morning Britain years ago when they were doing the, uh, they were doing an ITV show called The Big Reunion. I can't remember who asked them, but someone asked them about the Escape album that was coming out. And Taj had said, well, whatever my, whatever my uncle's name is associated with, I want it to be successful. He, he, you know, he made the point that they weren't connected to it. They weren't. They didn't work on it, but they want whatever his uncle's name was associated with, he wanted it to be successful. And I have a lot of that. I feel a lot of that. And I, you know, whatever Michael's name positively is connected with, I want it to be successful. My issue is that I don't support anything that the Michael Jackson estate ever release. And I will never support anything the Michael Jackson Estate ever release. So I absolutely will not be going to see it. I mean, I've seen Madonna was there a couple of days ago. I've seen, you know, members of the Jackson family have gone to see it, which is Great, but I've just taken a hardline approach to anything that the Michael Jackson estate releases, unfortunately. Uh, We had the conversation on one of the recent episodes about the Casio tracks and the statement that the estate had released, where they said they were releasing, they were removing the songs, but it has no bearing on the authenticity of the songs. And, you know, we spoke in that conversation about how there was no effort to kind of apologize for what had happened. There was no kind of contrition. There was no effort to kind of, make right all the things that had gone wrong between the estate and the fans. The ball was in their court and they kind of still fluffed it up, really. So there's no, my hard line still stands. I personally would not support it, uh, would not go and watch it. Different fans might feel differently, but that's that's how I feel about it, unfortunately. And, you know, I've heard that Miles Frost is amazing in the, in the lead role, but yeah, it is what it is.
0: Well, the last time I was on the MJ cast, when we were recording the Casio track, round table. I think I said there that if I was in New York, I probably would go and see the musical.
1: I think we all said that.
0: Yes. I, I'm not sure what Shawnee is talking about when he says that he feels that our review was very unfair. So my recollection is that some months ago, the MJ cast had a news item where we were talking about MJ the musical and that some people, one or more people who had been to see the musical had sent in a review. I think that if somebody's been to see the musical and has then sent us a review, then, uh, you know, that's what more can we do? I don't remember anyone who hasn't been to the musical giving a review of the musical. If somebody's been to see it and has sent us a review with some criticisms in it, then that's totally legitimate on their part and they're entitled to their criticisms. I don't think that it's outrageous for people to go and see a musical and then write a review with some criticisms in it. I think that some of us expressed some concern about matters of fact arising from the musical. So, for example, some of us had expressed concerns about the factual issue of the way that Catherine is presented in the musical, things like that. But, you know, knowing factual information about the contents of the musical and expressing concerns about those facts is reasonable and does not amount to a review. Anyway, I COVID permitting, I don't want to speak in, in definitives, although I have booked my flight, but COVID permitting and airport chaos committing, I will be in New York later this year. And it is my intention, whilst in New York, to go and see the musical. So I certainly have not been mounting any <laughs> attacks on the musical. I mean, I have obviously had concerns about the decision to retain Lynn Nottage after the comments that she made about leaving Neverland. And I, you know, may have expressed some concerns about matters of fact arising from the content of the musical as reported by people who've seen it. But I am a huge theatre fan, I go to the theatre all the time, so it would be crazy for me if I'm in New York not to go and see the musical, and uh, that is my intention later this year.
1: If I recall correctly, I think we all said that if we were in New York, we would absolutely go and see it, but that we wouldn't necessarily make a special trip to New York. Go and see it in New York.
0: Yes, I think that, yeah, that sounds, that chimes with my recollection.
1: Three of us on that episode are in Australia. There was Q in Perth, Damien on the Gold Coast, and myself in Sydney. For us to get to New York is logistically, especially for Q over in Perth, is logistically just awful. For Q, it's almost a toss-up whether it would be faster for him to go direct to London, which is a 17-hour flight, and then over to New York, which is another seven, Or whether he does the five hours to Sydney, 13 to LA, and then another five over to New York. You know, it's it's a long journey for Q. For us on the East Coast, Damien and myself, we'd either go from Brisbane or Sydney, respectively, to Los Angeles and then across to New York. So you're looking at thousands and thousands of dollars just to get to New York. Then you take accommodation into it. I'm certainly not in a position to be able to do that to go and see a musical. Having said that, if I find myself back in New York again at any stage, I would absolutely go and see the musical. The fact that it's winning accolades and getting so much positive response, you know, it makes it worth wanting to go and see. So absolutely, I'd go and see it. If they bring the musical to Australia, anywhere in Australia, I'll go and see it. The likelihood is it would probably come to Sydney before uh, any of the other major cap cities. But if it comes to Australia... Or I find myself in New York, we would absolutely go and see it. And the other thing about that show as well, I seem to recall the discussion was around reviews that were sent to us and concerns that people had gone to see it had sent to us, such as the use of the song Money to tie in with supposed bad behavior from the Jackson family, and also the portrayal of Joseph Jackson and Catherine Jackson.
0: Yes, that was on a previous episode. And I recall that. I recall that there were people who'd been to see the musical, had sent us reviews, and that they had raised some concerns saying, you know, this song is used at this time. It feels like an attack on Joseph. You know, Catherine is presented in this particular way. And there's a scene where X, Y, and Z happens with Catherine, and she's sort of presented as being complicit in abuse or something like that. And so, Based on those factual issues of the content of the musicals, people on the show were saying, well, that sounds a bit alarming. But my recollection is that the only reviews of the musical were provided by people who've been to see it. Yeah. And uh, I think you can't start policing, unless they're, unless they're just making things up in their review that didn't happen <laughs> in the show, Yeah, then you can't police people's reviews. If people have been to see the show and they didn't like it, or if they've been to see the show and were concerned by parts of it then that's their prerogative
1: so we were responding to things that people had sent to us and their interpretation of it obviously as time has gone on more people have gone to see it there have been more positive reviews you've seen people like prince and paris jackson going and seeing the show and other positive reviews and the more reviews that come in the more balanced uh, an opinion that we'll get of the show but in short yeah absolutely i'd go and see it if i had the opportunity
0: Yeah. And also part of the question was, have the accolades that have been sort of lavished on the show enhanced your desire to go and see it? And the answer to that would be yes. As I say, I'm a big theatre fan. I go to the theatre all the time. And... Yes, the fact that this show is performing so well uh, in terms of reviews and industry awards, the fact that it won four Tony Awards, for example, yes, that is a huge draw. I went just a couple of weeks ago to see To Kill a Mockingbird in London. I went to see that on the strength of the fact that it had won a number of Tony Awards when it was on Broadway. It's a Broadway transfer to London. So yes, the fact that it's won all these awards is definitely an inducement for me to go and see it.
1: So last question from Jamin. Charlie, this one's for you. He says, you once told me that you wish you'd had a chance to speak on the episode Elise Q and Bjorn did together about whether Michael was a gay icon. Tell us your thoughts.
0: Yeah, so it turned out that there was this episode that was being planned about whether Michael Jackson was a gay icon. And the idea was to gather some LGBTQ fans to talk about that issue. And I was among the fans that was invited to participate in that episode, but it was all arranged through an iPhone iMessage group chat, which some glitch meant that everybody in the group chat could see that I was in it. But in fact, I was not in it and I never received any of the messages. So they thought I was just ignoring them the whole time they were (laughs) putting the episode together. So this episode was made and came out and that was the first that I'd ever heard of it and I remember once again I was on a long walk I was walking around the woods near where I live listening to that episode and it was a brilliant episode I loved that episode but there were so many moments where the conversation was so interesting and there were things that I would have loved to chime in with an add. but now you know however long ago that was, that was a long time ago. Do I remember what those moments were or what I had intended to say? No, I don't. I mean, as far as the central question of was Michael a gay icon, I think it kind of depends on what your definition of a gay icon is. I think certainly that Michael was somebody that attracted a lot of LGBTQ supporters. And that's because that community, our community identifies with outsiders. You grow up feeling like an outsider and you're drawn to outsiders. You grow up feeling like an underdog and you're drawn to underdogs. And Michael was so vilified and so attacked all the time. And you could see that he was being bullied, you know, he was being bullied on a global scale. He was subjected to probably the biggest international bullying campaign that anybody has ever endured. And so, if you are somebody from a, an outsider minority community that feels that you too are being harassed and bullied constantly and that your existence is controversial and that you are under constant attack then you naturally identify with somebody like Michael Jackson. And also the fact that he was such an individual in terms of, you know, he he had long hair, he wore makeup, he dressed differently than other people dressed. He was very much himself and he embraced his otherness. And that is something that is uh, aspirational to people who feel like outsiders or feel like they can't be themselves or wish that they could be more themselves. I think, therefore, at the time... Michael Jackson was a big gay icon. However, I think that that has changed over time. I don't see a lot of love for Michael Jackson in the gay community today. I don't see a particular dislike of Michael either. I think he just isn't really spoken about, to be honest. And for some reason, he's fallen off the radar, whereas vastly inferior contemporaries like Madonna or Kylie Minogue remain on the, the gay pedestal for some reason, which is just inexplicable to, to me. But there you go. I mean, there, there's a whole other debate about the sort of debasement of the gay community by itself and, the, you know, its sort of obsession with portraying itself as being obsessed with triviality and frivolity and, and sort of trumpeting its adulation of crap I uh, just you know it just drives me up the wall but anyway, I think the the disappointment for me is that Michael unlike Janet never really I can't recall him ever making any kind of public statement in support of the gay community I mean he spoke a lot about racial unity he may at some point have spoken about embracing people of all sexualities or or genders or something. But if he did, I just can't recall it. I can't bring it to mind. And it would have been nice for him to have used his platform to take that stance in the same way that he did take a stance on other issues like Israel-Palestine or on civil rights or whatever. So, uh, I think part of that is that he was less rebellious than Janet, where his mother and father were concerned. So, I mean, if anyone that's ever watched the Louis Theroux documentary, which is um, called something like Michael, Martin and Me or something like that, because it's about Louis Theroux chasing Michael for an interview and then being scooped by Martin Bashir. And he ends up instead interviewing all these sort of dubious characters that are on the periphery of Michael's circle, like Majestic, Magnificent and so on. And he has an interview with Joseph where he asks Joseph whether he would ever like to see Michael settle down with a significant other. And Joseph says, what do you mean by that? And Louis says, with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, would you like to see Michael settle down with a boyfriend or a girlfriend? And Joe just becomes enraged and is so homophobic in that moment. He's just outraged at the suggestion that Michael could be gay and finds it so offensive and disgusting. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the family's Jehovah's Witness faith. That's the environment you have to remember. That's the environment Michael was brought up in. Michael was brought up in a household with people that held these views. And that was not uncommon for somebody of Michael's generation. And sadly, is not uncommon still today. And so it must have been difficult, it would have been difficult for him to take a stance on LGBT issues given his knowledge of his parents' views and what he might have felt, what inferences he might have felt they might have drawn from that. Probably the allegations in 1993 complicated things further. There is a very long, long tradition of the media conflating homosexuality with paedophilia and it's the same thing that the mass media is doing today with the transgender community where they're portraying transgender people as some sort of danger to children, as perverts who are trying to recruit children to their cause. That is the exact narrative that in the 80s and 90s, the media was using about gay people. And so had Michael ever spoken in support of the LGBTQ community, I would imagine that the media would have tried to make some association between that and him having been accused of child molestation, which is not a legitimate link to make at all. But nonetheless, I think they would have done that. So there are various circumstances, I think, personal circumstances and public circumstances, which would have made it difficult for Michael to actually become a public advocate for that community. But nonetheless, Janet did it. And I wish that he would have done something, just something. I just wish he would have done something because it would have been nice to nice for him to have done that.
2: Well, Darren Hayes, massive superstar, massive Michael Jackson fan also uh, attributes his ability to come out publicly to michael jackson to seeing michael jackson being able to live his own kind of or live as authentically as he could publicly and darren attributes his ability to come out to that so clearly the the evidence is there that it it mattered to a lot of people so yes i'm sure and probably that goes back to andrew's question about why michael was able to communicate to so many people because he represented so many things to so many people i think so, yeah, absolutely, he, he meant a lot, a great deal to the gay community, I imagine.
1: Yeah, I remember when that show came out, we actually took a lot of heat from people on the socials that came. So, of course, Michael wasn't gay. He said several times he wasn't gay. He took several opportunities in the media to say he wasn't gay. Why would you think he was gay? I think they completely missed the point of that episode. The discussion wasn't, was Michael Jackson an icon who was gay? The discussion was, is Michael Jackson an icon to the gay community, to the LGBTQ community. And I vaguely recall as well in, I think it was J. Randy Teraborelli's book where Michael said, listen, I'm not gay, but if people want to think I'm gay, let them think that. I'll have fans in that community and the last thing I want to do is alienate them. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something along those lines.
0: Yes, that sounds familiar, actually. I remember that quote now that you're saying it. Yeah, I think that he, in a roundabout way, He did work for the gay community. So for example, he did align himself with the cause of AIDS and he did support AIDS charities and so on. That clearly in the West was an issue which was disproportionately affecting gay men and he took a public position on that. But I can't remember him ever taking a public position on LGBTQ rights as such but nonetheless i think he was i think he was certainly in his time i think he was a gay icon and i think that he was a pinup for young gay people at the time who identified with him as an outsider but i don't see him today as a gay icon i don't know why i don't know why you would invest in madonna and not michael jackson i mean that's is range to me, but he seems to have fallen by the wayside, and so does Prince, and Prince was a huge gay icon in his era as well, and nobody in the gay community really talks about Prince anymore either. It, uh, they, there is a tendency to just sort of male artists in general just fall by the wayside in the gay community, and it all becomes this sort of worship of the quote-unquote the divas, you know, the uh, the grand dames like Madonna and dolly parton and celine dion or, or you, you know sort of ever decreasing quality as you go down through kylie minogue and then you get to breeze <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and little mix and all that old oh, shit but uh, even bewitched i mean i probably see more people in the gay community going oh my god bewitched than talking about michael jackson which is just lunacy but for whatever reason he has just been he's just been forgotten and abandoned by the community even though he did a lot for them really because even if he wasn't publicly advocating for gay rights or whatever he was making a political statement when he appeared in public with long hair and he was making a political statement when he appeared in public with makeup on you know that was frowned upon at the time and he was attacked for it He was really attacked for his appearance and it was an inspiration to a lot of people that he had the guts to go out in public, dress the way he wanted to dress and looking the way he wanted to look. And he did set an example and blaze a trail there, but it seems to have been forgotten. Another question here that's come
1: in anonymously for me. Carter, what was it like looking down on Neverland Ranch while flying over it? How much would you like to walk the grounds of Neverland one day? Yeah, so this is in reference to the time I flew a light aircraft over Neverland.
0: So how did that come
1: about? Well, how that came about is that my wife and I were in America in late 2019 for our very delayed honeymoon, and we spent a month in the United States. And we went to various locations, Dallas, DC, New York, Vegas, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Disneyland. And if there was something to do with Michael Jackson nearby that we could go and visit, we would try and do it. Now we did a hell of a lot of Michael Jackson things but if you look at all the things that we did during that month, the Michael Jackson stuff was a very small percentage of it. So we crammed a hell of a lot into that one month in the United States and we loved every second that we were there. It was great. I mentioned earlier that while we were in Washington DC, uh, we had an evening freeze so we decided to drive out to Middleburg in, in Virginia and go to the Goodstone Inn and had a lovely meal there. That was great. And when we were in New York, we went to Hoyt Skirmahorn Station, subway station, which is where the short film for Bad was recorded. We visited some places in Vegas, like his two houses and the Venetian and the shop where he went and dropped ridiculous amounts of money in the Bashir documentary. And once we left San Francisco, we were driving down from San Francisco to LA with one night in a beautiful Danish town called Solvang, which is about 10 or 15 minutes away from Neverland. So we left San Francisco, we drove down Big Sur... We stopped at Santa Maria to have a look at the courthouse where the trial was in 2005. And by the time we got to the front gates of Neverland, it was dark. So I said to my wife, look, let's get up in the morning. We'll come out and have a look at this place in the daylight and uh, I'll, I'll write a message on the wall or something like that. Well, I forgot my Sharpie and I had to write on a piece of paper, which I put in the wall knowing fully that it wouldn't last there long. Uh, but yeah, we had one night in Solvang, which is absolutely beautiful. Anyway, the following morning, we drove out to the gates of Neverland, uh, knowing full well that we couldn't go inside the ranch. So I recorded a little video, which is on my YouTube channel, but it still didn't quench the thirst. And on the way to Los Angeles, we stopped in Santa Barbara. And I said, I've got to do it. I've got to go to the airport. And we went to the airport. And I come from a flying background. I've worked in flying schools. So I thought, let's find a flying school, see if they've got an aircraft and an instructor free for an hour or so that we can just go up and do a flight. And I went into a company called Above All Aviation at Santa Barbara, said, hey, do you have an instructor in an aircraft free? And they said, yes, we do. Where do you want to go? And I said, Neverland. So we took off from Santa Barbara. We headed west towards the Gaviota VOR and then we tracked to the north. And I started recognizing Solvang and Los Olivos from having been there earlier that day. And we tracked Figueroa Mountain Road up to the north and lo and behold, we found Neverland Ranch. Now, to give you an idea of the scale of the place, it's 2,700 acres. Uh, Central Park in New York is 800 acres approximately. And uh, there's also a video on my YouTube channel of a helicopter flight we did in New York. It was brilliant. So the majority of the property is mountains and countryside, the area where the house and the tennis courts and the swimming pool and the train station and the fairground rides are, are all in a relatively concentrated area compared to the whole ranch. As for the part of the question that says, what was it like looking down on Neverland or flying over it? It was just magical and the reason I say that is that flying is my zen. Flying is where I feel the most relaxed and where I enjoy myself. I've got another friend who's a fireman. His zen, if you like, is snorkeling and he took me along once and I was just terrible. For me, it's flying, that's my zen, that's where I enjoy myself the most and you'll see that on my YouTube channel as well from the flights that I've done. And the thing I like about flying is that you're up in the air and you're looking down And you see other people going about their daily lives, cars, people walking around, things like that. And you start to understand how small and insignificant we really are on this great big planet that we have. And there's something about that that I just really love. And to combine that with flying over Neverland Ranch, somewhere that I've always wanted to go, always wanted to see, to combine that was just amazing and uh, something I'd really like to do again. In fact, if I ever get the chance to go back to California, that's definitely on the list. As for the part of the question that says, how much would you like to walk the grounds of Neverland one day? Well, absolutely. Somewhere I've always wanted to go. Somewhere that I would have loved to have been able to go when Michael was alive and living there. And obviously it's not possible. The fact that Ron Burkle now owns the property and is restoring it and, you know, never say never. I'm hopeful that one day there is the chance for me to get inside the property at Neverland Ranch and have a look around. But if it never happens, at least I've got the comfort of saying I have seen the whole ranch from the air. It was a beautiful, beautiful property. Okay, final question from mookie 864 No location given. My question is for Charlie Thompson. After finishing your podcast unfinished last year, I was left feeling like there may be more coming in the future. Can you reveal if you are still investigating the Shoebury topic and if there will be a season two?
0: Okay, so as far as unfinished is concerned, late last year, we won an unprecedented legal victory against the police. I fought the police for three years for access to files, and I I won those files in the end. And became the first person in UK history to win the disclosure of deceased criminals, police records under freedom of information, which is what at the beginning of the show, you mentioned the Association of Online Publishers Award that won a couple of months ago. That was what that award was for. It was for winning that unprecedented legal victory against the police. So we produced two new episodes of the show, which were episodes 10 and 11, which came out late last year. At the moment, there are no plans for further episodes of that particular strand, the Shubury strand, purely because there's no new information. So I am engaged in now another long-running legal dispute with the police over access to further information I'm having to take that through an official regulator, which is uh, an extremely long-winded process. They have a massive, massive backlog because they couldn't get into their offices for quite a long time due due to COVID. So the work of the regulator was massively disrupted. And there's now more than a year-long backlog of cases that have to be cleared. So it's going to be a long time before my case is adjudicated. If I win that case, I suspect I will uncover some significant new information. In the meantime, I'm working on a new series, a new podcast series at my day job, which is again a true crime series about a different case. It's about a guy who is in prison for a murder that he insists he did not commit. And I am reinvestigating the case to test the strength of his argument that he did not commit the crime. It's unclear at the moment whether that will come out under the banner of Unfinished or whether it will come out under its own. It could be season three of Unfinished or it could be it could be his own strand. But if you're subscribed to Unfinished, then there will certainly be a, at the very least a trailer which comes out on the Unfinished feed which tells you what the new show is and where you need to go to, to get it if it's not under the banner of unfinished. so And the reason I say that is that unfinished, the reason it's called unfinished is because it was designed to investigate unsolved crimes. Whereas the case that I'm looking at for this series is not unsolved. It is solved. But the question is, was it solved correctly or was it solved on paper, but the wrong guy went to prison? But it is not a cold case. It's not an unsolved case. So it may well... Not quite fit into the bracket of unfinished, but anyway, I can't say anything about that at the moment because it's sort of mid production. But yes, there's a new series coming about a different case, and uh, it's very exciting.
2: Oh, absolutely, it's been. uh, I, I listened to it probably around the time it came out, Charlie had sent me a link, and it just highlights what a brilliant journalist that Charlie is, and also. What an expert in his field he is. So he's not a Michael Jackson fan first, if you know what I mean. He's, And it's something that we've spoken again about on previous episodes. Michael Jackson fans are not just Michael Jackson fans. We all have jobs. We all have careers. We all have, you know, interests. We all have, you know, expertise in particular areas. And Charles is an expert in his field and is a successful and rewarded journalist uh before he's anything else do you know what i mean before he's before we're talking about him as just a michael jackson fan he is all of those things as well so it's important for people not to kind of dismiss michael jackson fans out of hand because some of some of us are i hate talking about myself but some of us are really well established and you know really successful in our careers and in our jobs and we live amongst you so um yeah it's i absolutely think there should be a season two yes absolutely i thought the first season was incredible and also very brave. It's really brave to kind of do the stuff, do the sort of work that Charles does. Scares me to death, but he's very brave to do what he does.
1: Yeah, Charlie, I listened to that podcast as well a few months ago. And although it was a very difficult topic to listen to, I really enjoyed the podcast. So you absolutely deserve all the praise that you're getting for all the hard work that you did for that. So really well done.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, I think that's all that we've got time for today, gent. So first of all, let me just say a huge thank you for joining me today. Your answers to the questions have been brilliant. really enjoyed recording with you both. If you can let us know where people can follow you on the social medias, uh, Summer, if you'd like to go first, where can people find you online?
2: On Twitter, that's my only social media at the MJAP.
1: That's fantastic. And Charlie, how about you? Where can people find you online?
0: Well, uh, as ever, my Twitter is at C.E. Thompson, and that's Thomson without a P, C-E-T-H-O-M-S-O-N. But I don't tweet very regularly about Michael. I tend to tweet more about my journalistic work. Uploaded a thread yesterday about uh, a local authority in London, which has been engaging in some uh, nefarious hijinks as far as uh, a major development is concerned. So it's, you know, if you're interested in that stuff, then follow me. But if you're looking for Michael content, I'm afraid it's infrequent on my Twitter feed.
1: Or on the embedcast feed.
0: <laughs> if you want to listen to unfinished, then um, it's available on uh, wherever you normally go to get podcasts, Apple podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Or if you want to find it through its own link, it's www.podfollow.com forward slash unfinished dash one. And that's just because there was something else called unfinished already. So we had to become unfinished one.
1: (laughs) Excellent. And of course, you can find me at Charlie W. Carter on Twitter. The same on Instagram, although I'm also at Alpha Charlie photos on Instagram. And that's where you'll find the photographs of Neverland Ranch. Uh, as well as my YouTube channel, which is just Alpha Charlie. If you'd like to contact us at the MJCast, you absolutely can. We are at the MJCast on Twitter. We are at the MJ Cast on Instagram. We are the MJCast, a Michael Jackson podcast on Facebook. You can email us, the MJ Cast at iCloud.com. And, of course, you can find us on all good podcast platforms, Apple, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and the likes. Thank you for joining us for the big British Q&A. We'll see you next time on the MJcast.